You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you guys? I am very excited about this episode. Um, I Actually, I've been ahead of schedule, and I recorded a bunch of episodes a few weeks ago and sort of laid them all out, and I'm finally getting to editing them, so uh, it's kind of weird. I'm introing a show that's already in the can, so I already know how cool it is. Um, and let me ask you guys this question. How many of you know, like actually know what an assistant director does, right? It's one of those credits that rolls up on the screen and you look at it and you go, is it someone that just helps out the director? Is it an assistant to the director? Uh, most people don't realize that it is one of the most important jobs on a set. I mean this, the most important job on a set. And I've talked before about the core team. And from my perspective as a director, it's all about casting my my keys, casting, like, like I said, the core team. And that's director of photography, that's the production designer, and uh, that's the assistant director in my mind. I'm not, I'm not downplaying any other position, uh, wardrobe, makeup, uh, gaffer, all those positions are really important. But when it comes down to directing something and directing something on a larger scale, most of my interactions are happening with the core group. Um, and I, it just blows my mind how many people don't really know what an assistant director does, not just outside of the industry, but in the industry as well. There have been multiple times where I have been put up for a job or I've been offered a job or been hired on a job where inexperienced producers or uh, people that are dealing with budgets, the first position that they usually get rid of is the assistant directing position, which absolutely can kill a shoot um, and my, it's my goal with this episode to uh, teach you guys the importance of an assistant director to actually educate you uh, into what they do every day and what their task is and to just give you a little bit of a glimpse because like, you may be listening to the show going oh, I don't really care about assistant director maybe I'll go on to the next thing this is actually one of the coolest positions on a set and working for the assistant directing department is a great way in if you're looking to be a PA and you're looking to work your way up and you want to have interactions with action, with actors, with talent, you want to have interactions with the crew, you want to understand how the entire shoot works, um, it is definitely one of the positions that you can get yourself into. Uh, but you have to have a certain mind for it. And let me just say this. An assistant director is responsible for coordinating. That's a big part of it, right? So if you're putting together a shoot no matter how big or small it is, uh, let's say that you're doing, um, I don't know, a basic shoot in a kitchen with a couple of chefs and stuff, right? I come up with the shots as the director, uh, basically come up with the plan for the creative on this thing and the talent that I want in it and everything else. But then the job falls on someone to sort of figure out how to put all those elements in place. And it's a it's a weird game of of like puzzle building because you're dealing with different schedules you're dealing with uh, understanding how long it takes for certain things to happen and so actually scheduling out a shoot and scheduling it out based upon shots and understanding uh, what is needed for a wide shot what is needed for a close-up knowing that if it calls for a dolly how many people are involved with that and understanding how long it takes them to set that stuff up it's a big deal 
And as a director, I try to know these things when I'm planning them to make my life a little bit easier and to understand what I could uh, deal with in a day, but I only know a fraction of it. And often when I'm planning these things out, I think I'm being clever by, uh, by taking my understanding of how long it takes these things. And then I turn to an AD and they laugh at me and they usually tell me that, Hey, look, Mike, you have planned way too many shots for the day. Um, we need to figure out how to condense these. We need to figure out the fastest way to shoot them. Does it make sense to shoot them in sequence? Does it make sense to shoot everything on this side of the room first and then swap it? Um, there's so many really fascinating uh, puzzle pieces involved with planning a shoot day, let alone an entire shoot. Um, so it's really interesting. So coordinating is a big part of it. And then you're as an AD, you're also dealing with talent. You're uh, usually managing talent. You're trying to get them to set, get them into makeup, get them uh, in front of the uh, director when you can. You're also trying to deal with any issue uh, so that the director doesn't have to handle it. So basically you're acting as a buffer between myself as a director in the creative role and then all the other drama that is usually happening on set. Um, so finding an assistant director uh, that has the right attitude, that has the right uh, tone is so important to your shoot because they are directly speaking for you as the director uh, for the whole for the whole job. Um, there's so much more to this gig and I'm really excited to have uh, one of my best buds on the show, uh, Vladimir Mutiny, who has been uh, my assistant director for years. Um, he's an amazing director as well. He's a fantastic storyboard artist. This guy understands filmmaking, and he has been trained by some amazing uh, directors and filmmakers. He's worked with some amazing talent. Um, and if you have seen 12KM, and I've said this before, and you really love that opening shot, that steady cam shot that we do, uh, that I get a lot of credit for, I'm telling you right now, the two people that made that happen, actually the three people that made that happen, uh, was John, the Steadicam operator, was uh, David Kruda and Vlad. Vlad did all of the blocking for the background talent. Um, you'll hear when you listen to this episode, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, you can tell how much fun it, we have in our own little inner circle uh, at the top <laughs> when we're on set. Um, I'm really happy I was able to convince him to be on this show. And uh, uh, I just can't wait to get nerdy about assistant directing. And I guarantee you that after you listen to this show, you're going to have a new respect for that position. A, uh, you're going to want to hire one every time you do a job. B, and for you upcomers, you're probably going to want to do it. So, you know the deal. Find that comfy seat in your house. Tell all your roommates to fuck off. Put on those noise-canceling headphones. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. (laughs) 
So, hey, Vlad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think it's really cool that uh, I could finally get you on to the show. Yeah, I think this is great, man. I love the setup. I think it's cool. I've been listening to the podcast. I think you're doing really fun stuff, man. Yeah, what do you think of our new million-dollar facility that we're recording in? Is it only a million dollars? It looks like a $2 million setup here, man. It's pretty cool, you know? Yeah, cheap labor. Like <laughs> imported labor. Now is that is that a is that a is that a new Lambo in that garage bay door over there, or is that like a rental or what? What's Re- up with repossessed. That? Ah, absolutely repossessed. People fitting. don't realize that you go to those auctions, you can you can walk away stealing, literally stealing <laughs> stolen goods. <laughs> oh, uh, we need to talk after this. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, as I have probably already said in the intro, that I will record later. Um, Vlad has been uh, a good friend of mine for years. How long have we known each other? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, it's smoke since smoke or before smoke. Oh shit! That was uh, smoke was Evan Sussman's movie, right? Yeah. Right. I forgot. I shot that movie with him, and maybe before that. Jesus Christ! It's been at least fifteen ish. Right? Yeah, years. Fifteen years. Yeah, um, and. We've worked together. You've been AD on quite a few of my movies. Mm-hmm. And then I, sh- I shot a short for you, too. You did. You shot Overtime for me, which was part of a project that we were doing for a book, a, a book on storyboarding that I did. Oh, right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you're a fantastic storyboard artist. Thank you, sir. Uh, and uh, a really great director in your own right as Thank well. you. Um, and what I'd love to do is we'll, we'll touch on all those things. But I think the most important part of this episode is... Assistant directing is one of those uh, credits that most people, from the general audience to fucking producers, mm-hmm. don't know what the fuck an assistant director does. Yep. Right? And so uh, it is such a important position on set. I think it's one of the most important positions on set. Um, and I really want to uh, introduce the audience to that. Cool. I think is what's going on with the show. I'd love to. I'd love to help out with that. So uh, let's do let's do a bit of history here to catch people up. How did you did you uh, get into this business wanting to be a director? Why did you get into this business? Always wanted to be a director. So I was always in love with movies ever since I was a kid. Like most people, um, you know, growing up with friends, we used to try to cast movies. You know, which I grew up loving comic books, so we used to try to uh-huh. think of which comic book movie would come out and how we would cast those movies. And Patrick Stewart was always up there as Professor X. And when he actually (laughs) landed that role, you know, big hoopla within our circles. (laughs) Um, So just always had the love, always wanted to do it. Never thought I could do it. Never thought I could do it for many different reasons because it's, you know, difficult to get in there. But I'm I'm also, you know, a Haitian-American person. Not many um, black filmmakers out there, Spike being the the predominant one at the time. Mm Mm-hmm just didn't think that I would be able to get in and, you know, how do you, how do you do it? So it wasn't until I got into college, you know, I went to college for illustration. Um, and my first year of college, I took an intro to film course. And when I saw that course, I was like, Oh, Oh, intro to film, (laughs) man, you know, let me, let me, let me cross off this other uh, class and, and try this one. So I signed up for that. And when I took that class, it just, something just kicked me right in the gut. And it told me that, it just showed me that, number one, that I could do it. Number two, how much my love for it 
was really just buried within me. And I just started making these little uh, Super 8 movies and then 16 millimeter. And after that, that just, that just kind of blew things up. So I ended up um, switching from illustration and uh, filmmaking, actually forced to, that's a whole long story, <laughs> but uh, started in the film program at Mass College of Art here in Boston. And then, you know, uh, it's, it's all history from there. I, I uh, finished uh, college and my, my senior year, I started meeting friends and people outside of uh, Mass Art who are working in the industry in, um, in production and on the crew side. And uh, a lot of my friends were on the crew side and the lighting side. And so they would get me onto sets and I would start day playing as like a third electric or a third grip. Mm -hmm. And so I started working as, you know, as a third uh, crew member, learning how to light. But while I was there, um, you know, given my love for movies and always wanting to make my own and having made them in, in college, I wanted to kind of watch other directors work. Yep. And you're working on these small little indie movies and you get on these little tiny, small sets because you don't have much money and you're in a small little house somewhere. And as soon as you set up a scene and you light, you know, most of the time you get booted out because there's not, not enough space and you need to clear eye line and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, you'd spend most of your time outside just waiting for the scene to be done and then you'd have to go and set up the next one. So I was like, this kind of this kind of sucks. I want to see the action happening. I want to see how directors direct and get performances and all that. So I decided to switch. And so I was, you know, I'm like, who can I be? Who can I be? I can climb up and become uh, a gaffer eventually. Um, but that's going to take some time. Who can I be right now? So I was looking and I was like, oh, the key PA often gets to be on set because mm -hmm. they help to lock up the set. And obviously the assistant director helps to, um, to set the stage and manage the scene. So I was like, all right, let me switch over. I'll go into production, I became a, a, a production assistant, then became a key set PA, and then climbed the ladder um, through the AD department. And that's how I started. And I started working in movies um, because that's what I loved. But movies, like you know, take so much time and suck up so much of your schedule. Yeah, yeah. Didn't offer me much time to do my own thing. And so um, I ended up moving out of features and getting into commercials so that I can free up some time to do my own little projects on the side. And that's how I ended up in commercials. Because right, commercials are just condensed movies. Condensed movies shot over a couple days or, or one day or a week at the most. And then you move on to the next one and then you have space in between to be able to do your work versus being on a feature where you're shooting five or sometimes six day weeks. And that seventh day is pretty much like a recoup day and a laundry day and a, you know, kiss the family kind of day before you go back into <laughs> yeah. the grind on Monday. So yeah, exactly. It leaves very little time to be able to do your own production and your own stuff. So, uh, okay. So you said that you wanted to become a key set PA, right? Yes. You know, so, so what is it for, for people that are just looking at these credits at the end of the movie going, wow, well, what, what the fuck does that mean? Like, what is a key set PA? So keeps key set PA, if you're on a movie, um, and some of these roles kind of change and switch a little bit when you, if you go from feature to commercial, but as a key set PA, you're working on a, on a movie, you're working in the AD department. So you're called what's, you're what's called an ADPA. And so you're part of the AD department and you are in charge, generally speaking, sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes the role um, can change a little bit depending on the crew and how they, they organize the responsibilities. But you're in charge of overseeing the PAs and hiring additional PAs, setting lockups with the ADs, and making sure that you maintain, um, you maintain the organization on set with the assistant directors on set. And so if you're um, 
you're shooting a scene and you have what's called five staff PAs, different PAs that handle different staff jobs for the AD department. Um, and you need more assistance for a particular scene. Let's say you were shooting interiors or you're shooting on a stage and all you needed were your, your five staff to handle all the workload that you needed to have done. But then all of a sudden you go out the next day and you need to shoot a bigger scene and you got to control a larger area and deal with a bigger crowd then you would need more um, you would need more personnel to kind of help support what was going on and dealing with uh, more extras and more a, a bigger lockup you know securing the scene for picture and both sound and so you would need to hire more people to kind of facilitate all that and so as a key PA you would then go out and start looking for additional PAs day players to come and help support with lockups or Help gotcha. with background and all that. So when you say lockups, that's kind of like herding sheep at that point, right? You're you're just locking down sets. You're you're making sure people are where they're supposed to be, and they're not talking when they're supposed to not talk. Exactly. You you, you want to make sure you contain and maintain a a professional and safe um, set and work environment. And by having your your production assistants in place and maintaining what's called a lockup, you you. You put your production assistants in certain positions uh, in the periphery, along the periphery of the set, so that you can exclude people who aren't supposed to be there or um, contain the crew that are there so that you can get a nice, clean picture. You know, no one walks into frame and busts your shot <laughs> or no one starts laughing or their phone goes off in the middle of a shot while, you know, your high paid actor is, is trying to deliver a very emotional line. I think a lot of folks don't realize the amount of manpower that it often takes just to create the atmosphere in which the director and the actors can work that's right it takes it takes a lot and again it depends on what's going on and what the scene is and and where you are you know if you're on stage and you can it's if you're on stage you can control that area in that situation pretty easily um with just by closing the doors and keeping a few people at the at, at the doorways but if you're um you know, I'm thinking about like Vanilla Sky. If you're yeah. Tom Screw, Tom Cruise running through Times Square um, in the middle of the day um, and trying to maintain a completely clean and clear Times Square for that shot. Um, if I remember, I had some friends who worked on that at that time. I think it was like 120 plus uh, PA, 120 point lockup, 120 oh PAs God. at various points throughout Times Square. In addition to, um, you know, fire and safety and um, um, police personnel who were there to kind of support because um, police are responsible for detaining um, uh, traffic or holding traffic. So you'll have all that personnel there holding traffic and then you'll have the PAs in doorways at different buildings and along sidewalks and maybe in windows to keep people back and out of the shot so that you, it can remain clear. How do you even manage the radio play with something like that? Uh, everybody's on walkie-talkie. So like everyone's on walkie. Everyone, every every department gets uh, assigned to a different walkie station, and so you'll have those assignments go out, and those departments will uh, be relegated to those specific channels, and then you just distribute your walkies out to people. And uh, the first three channels are usually reserved for the assistant director um, department. And so on channel one, channel one is pretty much the first AD's channel. Uh, if you have anything more than a couple words or sentences to say, you take it to channel two because the first AD will be talking on that and making sure he's dictating what needs to get done. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of that happens, you know, you just divvy up the departments and, and uh, they stay on their channels. If you need to talk to a different department, you go to their channel or you have Got them it. come to you. Got it. 
it's okay. So we're just putting our toes in the water here. Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at the title assistant director, it's not, you're you're not the director's assistant. (laughs) No. Like you're essentially running. Which is a title of in and of itself. In itself. Yeah. Yeah. So you're essentially running, you're directing all the other stuff. So the way that I've always seen it and in my limited experience, the way that I've always seen it is that, uh, I'm, when I'm directing, I'm usually just interacting with the keys. So mm-hmm. I'm usually interacting with the DP. I'm, I'm interacting with you. I'm interacting with any of the key positions. And then hopefully, if it's a great set, I'm just interacting with the actors. Right. And that's kind of it. Um, and it makes sense when you start talking about cinematography because it's like, okay, so he's in charge of the camera department, the lighting department, all those guys. Right. And it makes sense if you're talking about wardrobe. It's like, okay, so she has her wardrobe assistants, et cetera, et cetera. Production designer sort of goes down but for the assistant directing it's it's a fascinating thing because you're you have an army if it's a big thing you have an army of pas that are working for you mm-hmm. and assistants but then you're also handling and managing background background talent right there's like certain union restrictions where like the director is not even supposed to talk to background talent yes if you're you know there are different rules for union versus non-union if you're working on a union uh job uh, with union talent, then there's a differentiation between um, principal talent and uh, background talent. And so uh, in that instance, the assistant director will be responsible for running the background talent. Got it. And anything that the director wants to do usually has to get funneled through the assistant director. And the director is the one who talks directly um, to the principal talent. And so you want to keep that um, separation, you know, you want to maintain that separation because if the director starts to speak the, to the background talent, then they can potentially be upgraded to principal. And right, and then they get paid more. And then they get paid more. And then they get paid more for that, which is fast. It's weird union kind of stuff, which yeah. we don't have to go completely down that rabbit hole. But then, uh, all right, so then you're you're dealing with background, you're dealing with uh, your PA department, and then you're also dealing with every other key and dealing with all of what they're doing. Because then at the end of the day, you're also responsible for the scheduling of the shoot. You are. So your job as the assistant director is to manage the set for the director so that the director can focus on dealing with the talent and dealing with the shot and not have to deal with all the logistics that are taking place. So your job is to make sure that you schedule out the day. Your job is to communicate to all the different department heads what the shot is going to be or what the next shot is going to be or what the changes are going to be for the day. So I will um, schedule out um, a job and line things up for what the schedule is going to be, distribute it to the different department heads, have meetings with them to to, um, iron out any issues. And then on the day, I'll manage the set for the director so that I, so that he doesn't have to deal with all the small logistical stuff or even the big logistical stuff. Mm-hmm. And that way it allows him to take a lot of that managerial logistical thing, um, all those logistical things off his, off his shoulders. Right, that stress comes off. Exactly. And he can just focus on just being creative, Yeah, which is a pretty important thing. You know, being there, we both know as, as filmmakers, you know, there's so much going on, many different positions and in anything that can go wrong will. Mm-hmm. And all of that can start to get in your head if you're if you're trying to focus on this one delicate flower that you're trying to capture at the exact right moment or try to extract the perfect um, performance from this actor at the right moment. And so if you're trying 
to maintain this specific moment or pull this, this specific quality out of a scene. And you're thinking about, oh, is lunch going to land on the right time? Or yeah. I've got to get all these people out at this time and all this other stuff. There's, it's just a distraction. And so I'm, I'm there to make sure that you're not as distracted as you could be and, and you can focus on what you want to do. I was talking to, I was talking to Kruta about it. I think it was Kruta that I was having this conversation with. And I was saying the thing that I love about working with you when we do that stuff is that as a director, my voice is heard all the time. And I find that when I don't have an assistant director, when I work on jobs where they don't uh, pay for that. So you get on one of those gigs, I have to take my, this is my voice, which is normally used for creative and inspiration Mm -hmm. and inspiring folks. Also use that same tone of voice to go, okay, what are we doing now? Are we going to go? What's happening? Right. What's the next thing? And then, Two hours into the shoot, people are tired of hearing my fucking voice. Mm-hmm. And they start to tune you out, and, and you exactly. have to start ramping it up or trying different ways to engage people. Because when you're on a set, you know, it's uh, very much, I think you guys said it before on, on that particular podcast, it's very much like herding cats. Yeah. Um, and people, after a while, um, over time, will start to talk and things start to get unruly and things, the set gets very, very loud and noisy. And it could be very distracting. Um, as you're trying to work, especially if you're trying to focus and, and think of something or trying to extract something out of a scene mm-hmm. to, to think through all of the noise and all the commotion going on. And so as an assistant director, it's my job to be the one to manage the set and maintain calm and quiet so that people can focus and people can think and be creative. Yeah, and it's uh, I've worked with other assistant directors. Like Everybody has their own style for it, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and... The ones that I prefer not to work with are the are the ones that can't seem to hide their anxiety because it's a pretty anxiety fueled position. It is, yeah. It's very stressful. the The weight of the production is on your shoulders in terms of making sure that you manage and um, can make your days. You know, so if you if you don't make your days, that means you're you're missing shots, which means you're potentially blowing scenes. You know, you have yep. incomplete scenes, and then you have an incomplete commercial or movie, and there goes a lot of money. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure. It's definitely a high pressure uh, position. But to your point, there are different ADs who have different styles. You know, some are more vocal. I'll put it that way. You know, <laughs> where they're they're very much in people's faces and um, uh, and aggressive. Yeah. And that's definitely a style. And uh, some people like that style. You know, uh, they'll like the fact that they, they, they see that style and they see that as a way to get things done. Oh, that, that person's very aggressive. They're taking command and they're taking charge. And then there's another style where people are able to manage it in a way where it almost seems like they're managing it from the background, but they're not. Yeah. And having been under both those types of ADs, I learned um, from a very early time that I preferred the latter style and that both were able to execute and complete the days the same. So, you know, if you've got somebody who's constantly screaming at you, yelling at you, eventually it's going to increase the the tension and the anxiety on set. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily translate into good vibes and into a good product. But if you can get somebody who can command the set and get respect for what's going on, while doing it respectfully for the crew, I find that um, the crew tends to, they tend to work harder for you because they see that you respect them. 
that you're not in their face, that you're not harping on them. And they actually, this has been my experience anyway, and I've seen it with other ADs too coming up when I work for them. Um, they want to work more for you because they see that you respect them and what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, and we all know when we're shooting, we all know that it's a stressful fucking day. I mean, yeah. In the beginning of the day, we'll get that hard work schedule call sheet that your department's put out. And we look at it and go, fuck, yeah. like we got a shitload to do today. And we know this. And we, and a lot of times whenever we're working on commercials, especially where people are like, all right, we're going to cram way too fucking much into a day. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you get started, you're like, we're fucked. Like there have been times you and I have looked at each other and been like, yeah. Yep. Good luck to us. Yeah. <laughs> so, but knowing that and then having, this is what I like about working with you, having our relationship be very chill like from a AD directorial relationship or even an AD DP relationship. Mm -hmm. It's very chill, very laid back. The fact that we can joke about it, the fact that we can chuckle about it and the fact that the set never gets away from you. Yeah. And so you have this ability. And I was joking with, with your wife, Angela, when I saw her last week, I said, you know, what Vlad should do is uh, make an app for, <laughs> for every job that I can't get you on. I wish when I'm directing, I could just have an app where I just talk on my phone and go, okay, everybody lock it up. And then, and then Vlad's voice just goes, okay, everybody lock it up. And I go, okay, great. <laughs> you well, know? I, I, will, I will take that idea under consideration. <laughs> you should. You can make a fucking mint. <laughs> uh, but no, no, to that point, like it's not, even, even uh, with an AD who's very calm and knows how to move the crew in a very calm way, you know, you still have to get, you do have to get vocal, you know, people do get loud and, you know, there's equipment rolling and all that stuff. So you do have to raise your voice so that everybody can hear you. So you have to project, yeah. but there's a difference between projecting and, you know, screaming. Projecting physically and projecting emotionally. Exactly. Because emotionally, I'm a firm fucking believer that a movie is successful based upon what comes down from the top. Yeah. And that starts usually with the producer and the director combo. And then when you show up, that filters into you. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, oh my God, these guys are fucking out of their fucking mind. So like if you're starting at the top going, look, this is where, this is the tone that I want to have on our film. Right. Um, your it, matters. Gonna, it matters. It matters. Your movie's going to be better, dude. Yeah. It really, it really matters because that energy, it transfers to everybody. Even if, you know, a lot of times uh, an AD will be very aggressive with the crew, but when the actors come on the set, you know, they know that they can't really, um, upset the actors too much because they know it's going to affect uh, performance and then that'll end up coming back to them. So they'll, you know, yeah. they'll be, they'll handle the, the actors with kid gloves and then go back and be very aggressive with the crew. And a lot of times the, the actors will still see that and you know, it, it may rub the actors the wrong way, but it, even if they don't, I feel like the energy still kind of permeates throughout the, the set. And yeah. I feel like, um, it doesn't necessarily end with a better film or a better commercial. So, and then in the long run of things, if you're in this for like the career path, like if, if you're in this, especially as a director and you're like, look, these people, I'm going to be working with these people for a long time. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't want to have that reputation. And you know, I, I've talked about this on private previous episodes where I have in the past flipped out on a music video shoot. And I, I was, fucking so pissed off us throwing chairs i think larry and i got into a fucking beef really oh my god oh man i would love to see oh that. we were on this i've talked about it before i'm gonna have larry on the show next week actually <laughs> but we talked about it on the show where we were doing mashuga and uh him and i just weren't connecting it was my fault as a director because i wasn't conveying what i needed mm -hmm. and there's a lot of fucking stress and time and all that shit and i remember just being on set and he did he didn't pull off what i needed to do and i just flipped the fuck out 
and I got so mad I was tossing chairs. And I just saw, after that happened, immediately, uh, being sort of empathetic about it, looked around and went, fuck. Because I just saw how everybody reacted. Mm -hmm. And when people... Uh, avoid conflict. It's so interesting to watch how they process conflict. Right. Especially if they don't feel like they're at the same level as you are in a position, like a right. job position, and just watching them like internalize it and walk away from it. And then they cluster off in the little groups on the outside mm -hmm. and then they start to talk. And then that just sort of fucking... It's, it's just festers and... It saturates your whole... Yep. I learned a hard lesson that day. That was the only time I've ever done it. It's the last time I will ever do it in my fucking career. Um... It sucked, and I felt like an asshole. And then I, I'm, I'm friends with these people, so like, not only does it, not only does it permeate on set, but like, then you're drinking beers and you're hanging out, right? And they're just like looking at you really weird. <laughs> and you got to figure out how to smooth things out. Yeah, and, they're, and then, but, but then that, they're like, you're an asshole. And you're that like, yeah. speaks to how you know how stressful you know the job can be. You know, there's there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of high stakes, there's a lot of emotion, and you know we're all human. Yeah, and that's what happens. You know, sometimes you need to blow off steam. As long as you can recoup, that's what matters, you know. Well, that's a very glad way of saying that. <laughs> it's very nice of you. So right about now seems like the perfect moment to take a break and thank the people that keep the show going. I'm talking about our amazing sponsors. You guys know who you are. Um, the two big ones that uh, continuously return and support this show uh, are both Rule Boston Camera and Puget Systems. So let's start with Puget, okay? Puget Systems. If you are a video editor, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a photographer, uh, if you're a gamer, if you're anybody that is in the market right now for a new computer, and maybe in the past, you've always gone after the expensive fruit, shall we say. You've always been convinced that there is a certain brand of computers that will never crash, never fail you, never leave you, keep you safe at night. Uh, and if you're in the uh, video editing world, you realize that uh, that wasn't necessarily true and they kind of left us high and dry when it came to updates. Um, if you don't know who I'm talking about... I own a cell phone from them and a laptop from them. Uh, they drive me crazy. <laughs> so if you're looking for a brand new computer and you're in the market for one, I would definitely look into buying a PC. Why? PCs generally are faster, generally are less expensive to build, generally are a lot easier to upgrade. We're talking about upgrading here, guys. We're talking about not actually taking that thing that you bought two years ago and fucking throwing it away because it's obsolete. Um, and if you're going to build the PC, it's a process to do if you've never done it before. I highly suggest you go find somebody like Puget Systems. I found Puget Systems years ago when I decided to go back to PCs and I had a post-production company where I had multiple editors working for me and I didn't want to be the guy that built them and had to be tech support for everybody. I wanted to find a company that can make really great machines for me and provide amazing tech support. Uh, and Puget Systems uh, st stood right up, waved their hand, said, come on over here, check this stuff out. Um, so 
go check them out. Go to PugetSystems.com. There you can pick out a PC based upon the software that you're going to use, which is pretty awesome. You can actually uh, choose the software packages that you hope to use for it, and they'll suggest a baseline system that you can then customize. Uh, and these guys are very approachable. Um, they, the tech support, you actually get somebody on the phone. You don't get put on some fucking long email goddamn waiting list. Like, it's, it's really, really great stuff. Uh, I'm really passionate about this shit. I love these guys. I cut everything on their PCs. Um, and uh, I would go check them out. So go to PugetSystems.com. I get too passionate. I, I almost didn't make it to that read. <laughs> okay. Uh, next up, our good buddies over at Rule, Rule Boston Camera. Now, if you're a young filmmaker, a young producer, even a young photographer these days, um, and you're finding it difficult to keep up with the trends, you're finding it difficult to keep up with the newest hardware, uh, do yourself a favor. Make friends with your local rental house. I learned a long time ago that the only way to survive in this business is to keep your overhead low. Uh, and that means that I don't go out and buy the newest fucking camera on the market. Uh, because I, I, you then become a rental house. You then become someone that is obsessed with gear and you need to try to make your money back. And that can be so difficult. Uh, oftentimes when you're new and you're starting out, uh, producers will ask you to throw your camera gear in for free and you're still paying that fucking thing off. Uh, I'm on a tirade here. Go make friends with your local rental house and if you're on the East Coast, uh, Rule Boston Camera is my favorite place. These guys uh, teach us, they train you, uh, they offer up the newest, greatest gear. You can actually go in and get your hands on the equipment that uh, was used to shoot the movies that you love so much. Um, and here's the really great benefit about it. They will guarantee their stuff. So if you're shooting on set, like always happens, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how much money you spend, equipment likes to fail. Could be temperature caused, could be battery caused, it could be anything. Um, and one of the benefits of working with a local rental house like Rule is that they will literally drive out a replacement to set for you. So that's kind of the negative when you're renting from these online places is that A, you can't really check out the gear, you get what you get, and then B, if something goes wrong, you're screwed. Um, so imagine being able to turn to your clients as a shooter and say, my stuff's pretty much guaranteed, and if there's a problem, they'll bring me a replacement. So it may cost us like 15 minutes or half hour on set as opposed to the day. Um, there's so many benefits of it. Uh, and if you guys have any questions, reach out to the guys at Rule, Rule Boston Camera. Uh, they love independent filmmakers. Uh, it's very easy to get involved with them. Uh, you don't need to feel threatened uh, by becoming friends with a rental house. It's not as hard as you think. Uh, if you got any questions in general, reach out to them. Or you can always reach out to me and uh, I will give you suggestions. I've worked with rental houses across the United States. So I can suggest uh, places all over the place. But... I would say, if you're on the East Coast, please support my sponsor. I love these guys. Rule. Rule Boston Camera. Okay. Those are the reads. Let's get back to the episode. Uh, so, okay. So, then moving on. Um, so, scheduling is a fascinating thing. Mm. Uh, because uh, I think uh, folks that don't work in the business that are listening to this and even young folks that are 
just getting into the business. Uh, when you write out all these great ideas, especially if you're doing uh, anything, really, but if you're doing action, you're doing anything that requires coverage and requires uh, very specific uh, details met for what is in the scene, the fucking scheduling of that is, is really difficult. Yeah. Most of the time. It's very difficult. And the smallest, subtlest little things can change how things are shot. It's a very rare occasion that a movie is shot in sequence. I think you have to be some like fucking artist dictator to be able to convince somebody to go, I'm shooting everything in sequence. Right. Cause it's, it's the biggest waste of money in my mind, you know, doing that, you know, and I'm, I guess if the movie calls for it and I probably shouldn't say this stuff, but if the movie calls for it then I get, I get, and sometimes do it, it does, yeah. you know, and sometimes like I, you know, very, very rarely it just works out that way. You know, like you said, there are many, many different facets to why things are scheduled a certain way, whether it's actor availability, location availability, timing of day, all of those things um, play a factor in many, many more. And so you have to take all of those things into consideration and try to uh, make a puzzle pretty much and fit everything into the amount of time that you're allotted and then manage that on the day to, to make sure that you, you can, can stay capture on everything. Yeah, yeah. You know? So it's it's a little bit... You know, it's part science in terms of how you break things down. And then the rest is all art. You know, you have to be flexible. You have to look at the ground and see how you can move and change and adjust according to what's going on. Because like we both know, you're you with all the best intentions, you intend to get this day in 10 hours. But then the camera stops working for whatever Mm -hmm. or the actor, something's wrong with the actor or this piece of equipment didn't show up on time or what have you. Um, any number of things can go wrong and then you have to figure out, okay, what can we do now? What can we jump to? Is there anything we can adjust? Do we have to make a change here? And so it's always about understanding how to be flexible, how to be flexible and then build in flexibility into the schedule. Yeah. So you want to make sure that you have um, things that you can go to in case the, the shot that you're working on craps out for whatever reason or takes too long or what have you. A good example of this, and I think Crude and I talked about it on, on the show, was when we did 12 Cam. Mm-hmm. And 12 Cam, I couldn't have done 12 Cam without you. Like, Vlad was like an important part of 12 Cam for okay. it. Seriously. It was like you, me, and I mean, everybody was important on that movie, but there hit a point on that film where I felt like it was you, me, and Crude standing <laughs> on top of everything going, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we become very close. Yeah. Like, the three, like three of us become very close in those scenarios. And, um, there was that, I don't know if you remember, we were shooting, we were going to do the steady cam day. Yeah. Right. And we, <laughs> and we show up to set and my poor production design team had been up all night and they didn't, uh, pull off what they said they were going to pull off. Mm-hmm. And so I was expecting a 360 set essentially to be able to do a steady cam move, which is the infamous steady cam move at the beginning of 12 cam when we follow the character in and we established the whole space. And it was integral for the story because I knew I'd be doing a whole lot of like coverage and cross cutting in this room. And I knew that the audience right away needed to understand where everything is. Mm-hmm. That's why we designed the office with blue light. That's why we designed the, the altar with a certain thing. So that way later on when I'm cutting around, the audience goes, Oh, right. That place is to the left and this place is to the right. And they have sort of a, a sense of the uh, geography of the scene. So it's a really important fucking shot. Yeah. And the, it isn't just jack off, hey, look how long we can do a fucking steady cam move. It's a, it's intentional. Right. 
and we had talked about this for a while and we showed up that day expecting to do that first. And I was flying in the steady cam guy. He was the NFL dude. So he was flying in for like four hours or something and then flying back out to make another game. So we had to deal with that. Right. That was a thing. That was a thing. <laughs> that was a thing. And again, there's always a thing like that where you've got a window and you need to hit it and fingers crossed that you, that you get it, you know? And remember we showed up and the shit wasn't set up for it. And then Crudo was looking at me like, what are we going to do? And then we're looking at each other. And if you remember correctly, I broke, we broke all the rules here and I went, go shoot the inserts because <laughs> we shot that whole scene ass backwards Yeah, in, in order for us to build the rest of the set behind you. Right. So while that we you can guys do were the doing shot. It. Yeah. But it was great because I sent just essentially sent you guys off to do it. And that's the great thing of, of, of having a good assistant director is that I can go, Vlad, you know what we need. I got to go fucking handle this craziness. Cause I was playing producer slash director at the same time. Right. And you guys were able to go bang out like all that fucking coverage. Right. Uh, and then we then did the opposite and we did the reversal shot, which is more complicated, getting way down a hole. It's more complicated because normally when you shoot a scene, you want to shoot the master first, the wide first, because then it sets up all the rules, right? Right. right. All the rules and all the continuity. So if, you're, if you've got a wide shot and you set up whatever the, the action is going to be, um, you then know, based off of that wide shot and the length of that shot, where certain actors are going to be and where certain props are going to land and all of that stuff and what the light is looking like and all of that. But if you're forced to, you know, you never usually want to do this, but if you're forced to and you have to go in and get all your inserts, all of your tight shots first, then when you go back and you do the wide and you set the whole stage, you now have to match to those inserts and it may not always work for mm -hmm. that wide shot, mm -hmm. you know? So that's why you always want to do the wide shot first, make sure everything works, and then you can just roll in and punch in on all the details and, and just bang those out. So then we had to backtrack. We started with the inserts and then backtrack and then had to make sure that everything worked within the wide. Within the wide, which made the wide twice as complicated mm -hmm. to do. Besides the fact that we had all those extras, besides the fact we have all this stuff. I get a lot of credit for that shot, and every time someone tries to give me credit for that shot, I go, no, 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 that's Kruda and Vlad. <laughs> Because you essentially directed all of the, the the talent, all the background talent for that shot. Yeah. And got the timing right for that. Yeah. You know, with, with large scenes like that, a lot of times, especially when you have, you know, background actors and all that stuff, you're working in tandem with the director. You know, the director's going to focus on the main talent and what's going on. Obviously, the director wants certain things to happen and they'll want to see certain background action here and there and all that stuff. But while they're working with the principal talent, you're you take what the the understanding of what the director wants out to the background actors and you set the stage. And then once you have a good idea, you play it out for the director, the director looks at it, and then you guys make your tweaks and mm -hmm. adjustments. You know, this works, that doesn't. And then you start to iron things out. Um, but the bigger the scene gets and the more background you have, the more you have to rely on your ED team to kind of execute and all that stuff. Because you can only handle a certain amount of people. Like exactly. At, at most, how many people can one person fucking handle? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just, you know, when you get to a certain point, if you start having more than, usually like on a big movie, on a big movie you'll have a first assistant director, second, a key second assistant director, uh, a second second assistant director, and then your PA staff, right? And that's usually what, how it's staffed out. And 
depending on on what's going on per day, you'll you'll get anywhere from 30 to 80 background actors per day. And you'll set the stage and you'll have enough people to kind of wrangle and manage all of that. But then once you start getting above that, um, then you get to the point where you'll start needing to get um, a second, second assistant director um, or rather an additional second, second uh, to come in and help. And then you'll have to get more, more uh, PAs to come help manage and all that stuff. And it just starts getting bigger and bigger. And so you start getting into a thousand people and then 2000 people, then you'll have to have multiple second seconds and all that stuff to start managing and, and setting the stage and then That's crazy if you are doing you know anything with stunts if you, i don't know if you saw roma you know looking, i haven't seen it yet is that shot where they look out uh, the second floor of this um this shop where they're getting furniture and this whole crowd of people are you know just running down the street and there's this whole big uh, riot that's happening down there hundreds of people are rioting and there's all kinds of stuff and it's all happening within one shot as you're moving from the intimacy of what's happening inside the store with the principal talent to the chaos that's happening outside Crazy. I mean, you've got you know you've got lots of crew <laughs> handling that not just assistant directors but because there's stunts happening and all that there's like you know riots and you know fires and all that stuff but you got you know pyro there you've got stunt coordinators you got all that stuff and you know that's weeks of meetings and planning to get and pull that off you know and then you know the you know probably weeks of shooting too just to pull that off you know well and and then in the script it says some sort of descriptor like and then the, the family looks outside and outside there's a riot exactly it's like that's all that's <laughs> it's one line it's like uh, i can't remember what part which which lord of the rings movie um but uh, in one of the scripts i can't remember when you know, this person comes up and then, and then they fight. And it's like, it's like the scene of the two towers where <laughs> the huge 30 minute battle happens, you know? Yeah. 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 And and then they fight. It's like the biggest <laughs> part of that whole thing. It's funny, man. It's when you start to break down a script and that, that early stage is fascinating for me because I break it down twice. I usually break it down if I'm storyboarding or doing that and I sort of break it down visually and I look mm-hmm. at it and go, how many shots and how do these shots work? Yeah. And then when we sort of sit down with the AD department and then we break it down again yep. and it's like, okay, so how many people are needed? How much, how many resources are needed? How long is this thing going to take? How much rehearsal do you need for this? Um, and then what order do we shoot these things and how do we shoot these things? And, exactly. And that is constantly fluctuating. It's, it's fucking fascinating. Um, it's, that's why I love that department. It's such an important part of it because being a director that sometimes will do my own things where I don't have any money and I sort of have to sort of AD and produce and do all those fucking things. Once you don't have it, once you've had it and you, you feel the weight, you, you totally do. Yeah. And it changes how you decide on stuff directorially. Mm-hmm. Like I'll sit there and go, this is going to be a huge pain in the ass. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> like, no, it, it makes it sense totally because does. you have to look at it and be like, you have to look at it realistically and through your own experience. You know, if you yeah. if you were just starting out, and you'd you'd probably bite off more than you can chew. But you look at it and you say, you know what, I need to make sure that I get this performance or this quality of shot or whatever. And if I blow this scene up with all these extra things and bells and whistles, mm-hmm. I'm not really going to get the quality that I want. You know, I'll get a shot, but I don't. I want to make sure that I get the shot at the level and quality that I want. 
Yeah. And yeah, you you end up having to self edit and and focus and contain things so that you can get what you can really realistically get. As opposed to like when you when you and I have conversations and we've had many of these where I give you my shot list and you sort of look at it and I'm like, and I know. I try to just smile. I know when I give it to you. I know what your answer is supposed to be. I know you're supposed to be like, you're a fucking idiot. That you're asking for, you're an idiot. And it's, it's the response that I usually get from Krita because Krita looks at it and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> That's usually the response. But I usually get from you and you go, oh, this is what we're doing, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't like, do you think we can pull it off? You go, well, we'll see. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. And I just, I, you know, I usually kind of set the tone that way, nice and gentle. And then I, and then I end, I come back around and I say, okay, so these are the things that you want to do. I think, I think it's all great. Um, let's flag out all the things that are priority. <laughs> Which I know in my head is like, Mike, tell me the fucking shots that we're going to cut off this list. <laughs> but no, that, I mean, that's part of being a director. The same thing for me when I direct my stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm in the same boat as, as you as well, working on commercials. Sometimes you have a budget for an AD. And then sometimes you'll get a job where you don't. Yeah. And, um, but you come at the project with, you, you just come at it unfiltered and un encumbered you know you want to make sure that you can bring everything that you can to it and you start having all these ideas and you start putting all these ideas up and then you know it takes a while for you to step back and and look at the mountain and say you know what i just want to climb a hill today yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. i mean for me it's really difficult because i edit too yeah so when i'm looking at this stuff i'm thinking about myself in the fucking edit room yeah like we did really well on 12 cam. We were doing like 35 setups. Like we were doing some ridiculous stuff mm-hmm. on that. Um, and I, we only missed two shots. Yeah. But those two shots, yeah. when I got into the edit room, I was and, like, and one Fuck. of them was because uh, it was the whole one and there was some sort of issue that. Yeah. That's it, was, right. it was because we couldn't get it. It was because the whatever the contraption we needed just Didn't wasn't work. working and, yeah, and yeah. whatever. But yeah. 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 It was just, and, and, Especially being like the way I direct everything that I plan out has a real solid purpose. Like I, like I will plan my shots out to the edit, essentially mm-hmm. uh, leaving room, hopefully for extra stuff, because then there's always that crazy shit that you find. Um, but when I don't get those shots that I need for that, then the whole sequence changes. Right. And a lot of the, a lot of the time it's just that stupid insert. And the one thing that drives me fucking crazy as I go off on this tirade the one thing that drives me nuts is that inserts are always saved to the end. Mm-hmm. Always. Because it's like, okay, insert's not as important. The hands that are grabbing the cup or the fucking the reaction shot of somebody. But fuck me. They are the most important thing in the edit. because yeah, They give you an out. Exactly. Or they help you set a pace. Exactly. Yeah. And they always, and it's taken so long. Like when we did Who's There, we were on, we were on point. We got everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's taken so long in my career to be like, no, fuck you. Inserts, inserts are, just imagine that Brad Pitt's in this fucking insert. That's <laughs> <laughs> how important this insert is. We need it. We need these things. It's funny. It's, it's weird how as nerdy as we're getting on this. It's, yeah. And, on, you know, to that point, you know, um, a lot of times when you're on features, you'll save all that stuff till the end. And there'll be moments uh that the script supervisor and, and the AD will have recorded that you missed. And then there'll just be a pile of shots that have to be gotten. And so at the end of a movie, the movie's 
principal photography is pretty much wrapped and you're just shooting what's called the insert unit and you're going back and you're getting all of these little shots you know uh, i remember remember working on this movie where you know we did everything from you know feet walking down a hall to hands rolling down a window in a, in a car that was supposed to be driving down the street and everything was done inside the studio we were just like recreating lighting setups and then shooting all these little tight things that we yeah. had, we just couldn't get on the day yeah yeah i, I i'm been talking about this a lot planning for the new for the feature work that's coming out with me um that i want to have like three or four days just immediately ready to go in the budget that i can do after i've been in the edit room for at least a couple weeks Mm -hmm. because i know no matter how hard we try to plan no matter how hard we try to get everything you're still sitting in that edit room going it would fucking rule like this would be so great i would not be pulled out of this scene if i just had an insert right or if I just had the ability to cut to this thing. Right. Um, and luckily with 12 cam, I, I disguised that with a lot of the science experiment shit that we did. So mm-hmm. I was able to get kind of cerebral and crazy with my insert stuff. And then I shot a lot of stuff here at the house, like the tape decks that I didn't use, like a bunch of different things that yeah. were inserting. But you need it. That's why when people make a big fucking deal when they hear that uh, big directors on movies are doing reshoots, it's like, no. That's not a big, that's a, it's important. That's part of the fucking process. Yeah. Would you rather they just put out whatever that cut was where because of the day they couldn't get the important insert that they needed or the important coverage that they needed? Yeah, no. I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't make you any less of a director. It's not something to knock on for that. It's, it's just the reality of the process. The process, yeah. yeah. There you go. Sometimes uh, you have the best intentions and you have the best, or what you thought was the best plan, and as you put it together, you realize, you know what? If we tweaked it this way or that way, it would be better. And sometimes, even though you had a great plan, something happens that just throws a wrench in it all, and you just weren't able to get what you were supposed to. You know, again, like we had the window of four hours with that steady cam person. We needed to shoot. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we would have lost that shot. Exactly. You know, and so that anything... Anything and everything can happen, and when those things happen, you have to adjust, and sometimes you have to go back and... and fill holes and plug things it's a whole it's like a it's a i always relate to independent film directing to being submarine captain essentially you're you're piling a bunch of fucking people into this boat that's got a bunch of holes in it Mm -hmm. and you're going underwater (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah you know and it's it's domino shit so like everything is built like that steadicam guy like I couldn't find a steady game guy in town. I couldn't find someone that was good enough. I couldn't find any of that. So the negotiation of getting that guy, trying to get him there, trying to convince him that this is worth him fucking flying out for, mm-hmm. getting him to come all the way out here for that. And then he was sitting around for, you know, an hour and change because we had to fucking make up for something else that happened. Right. It's just part of the system. Like the one little thing falls apart. Yeah. That's all. It's a, you know, all the cogs have to fit together. It's like when we were doing the basement stuff in 12 cam and we were, remember I thought it was all fucking smart and I'm like, we'll just light it with the flashlight. I do remember that. Yep. Yeah. We'll just light this whole thing with a fucking flashlight. I can lose half the grip truck. I don't have to pay for the fucking truck this day. I'll just do it with a fucking flashlight. Yeah. And then it turned out that that flashlight uh, would only work for two minutes before it started to flicker. Yeah. What was up with that thing? It was like no some idea. weird... I, I don't know. It just it was like the battery. It was like the power outage on the batteries. As soon as it used any of the power outage, it, it, it started to fuck with the yeah the we refresh kept rate. Swap it out and, and that had each of those batteries. They were fucking expensive. It ended up costing me at the end of the day. I think my my bill for batteries for that was like 
$400. Yeah. Oof. And we had to go, we had to send a PA out to buy because they were fucking specialty batteries. Right. And he had to run all over the place to get those batteries. Because it was like a, a special xenon bulb or whatever. Right? Whatever the fuck it was. Yeah. Remember how long we were sitting around? Yeah. And I just remember you remember the way you looked. <laughs> you just giving this look like, is there anything else we could do? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. It's <laughs> <laughs> nothing. We're gonna sit here. <laughs> Because we were out of commission for like a good two hours, mm-hmm. two, two and a half hours. Yeah. And then you're just going, fuck. And we still made the day. That's what was so crazy about it, is that we still fucking got it all done. Yeah. And that's the thing about it. It's like when you're setting, when you're looking at, at scenes and you're putting things together, you try to see if, if you can, if you can pad certain things or if something like that happens where you're just completely derailed, how can you attack other things in a more efficient way? You know, you, you have your original plans. Oh, we're going to do this with a dolly and this and that and the other thing, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now we just lost two hours. If we set up this long dolly track, that's going to eat up our time. How can we do it a different way? How can we do this, that? And you start shaving time because you start adjusting accordingly. Yeah. Can this be handheld? Can this be done in one shot instead of two shots? Do I really need all that coverage? Right. Can I block it differently? Yeah. All those things. And that's the cool, that's actually the fun part about directing, I think, is like being on your game where you have that sort of confidence level where you go, I know this scene, you know, and you start pivoting. And that's why, you know, um, you know, there, there are many different directors and everybody has a different style. You know, some, some are very much, they're just very organic and almost come at it. Um, I'm talking, you know, narrative filmmaking. They come at, they come at it almost like a documentarian almost, you know, where they'll just come and watch a scene and then just, and then start blocking it from that point on and then just finding their shots and don't do much boarding, you know, unless it's a very specialized scene with action or whatever. Um, and then there are other directors who come in and they're very, very meticulous about how they visualize everything and they get everything down to the exact frame of how they want to do it. Um, and I feel like you need to have either way, depending on whichever way you go, whether you're very organic or you've got everything planned, you still need to be able to think on the fly and find things mm-hmm. that's going on. If you're very organic, obviously you're going to be finding and searching for things, but you'll have a general idea in your head. Um, you need to be able to go off the idea, have the essence of what the idea is, have the intent of what's going on, but then be able to look at what's in front of you and being be able to change gears because anything can happen and you need to be able to roll with the punches. Mm-hmm. And then, and not only that, but sometimes you have the best plan and it just does not work. And now you're looking at it and you just need to figure out how to make it work. That's why I like working with you because we did that on, on who's there. Cause I ended up changing up like the way I covered the whole top sequence with her going down the bathroom based upon her performance. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to you and I was like, it was nice to have you in my corner because a lot of times when, as you know, as a director, sometimes you feel very lonely Yeah, you're just at the top Yeah, and everybody's. Everybody's looking at you because you supposedly have all the fucking answers, mm-hmm. which is not true. <laughs> <laughs> but you still have to look like you do. Yeah, exactly. You know, because you have to make sure you project confidence so that people feel like they know they're they're going in a direction and things are okay. Exactly, yeah. and and so that's why I like working with both you and Kruda because I get it on on two different sides. So like, you and I were able to sit there and I was like, Vlad, let me talk to you this coverage and does this work? Does yeah. this work? Because you you are so invested in the script at this point because you've done the breakdowns, you know every scene, you know what the actor is going to do in every scene, you know what the fucking movie is, right? And hopefully you've got it playing in your head 
80, 85% the way it's playing in my head. Right. You know what I mean? So right. we're on point with it. Right. And as, as an assistant director, that's part of the job. Like, um, I remember working for uh, NAD and she was, you know, we were doing something and I can't remember what was going on, but we needed to pass off some information and she refused to pass that piece of information off to the director. And it wasn't anything, uh, you know, critical to, you know, a performance or anything like that. But she was like, no, 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 we'll handle that. And I'm like, oh, I was conveying this from somebody else so that this AD can pass it off to the director. And she's like, no, 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 we'll convey, we'll, we'll take care of that. Our job is to take as much off the director's plate as possible. And in order to do that, and so you got to take as much off the director's place, plate as possible and be able to execute as if you're the director. Yeah. In order for you to do that, you need to understand the script. You need to understand the boards. You need to understand the intent. You need to be in the director's head as much as you can. You know, you can't be 100% in a person's head, but you need to understand it as much as you can so that you can start to think like that person. And when you need to make adjustments, you are able to um, make those from the perspective of where the director is. Exactly. It, to the point where when the director looks at it, he doesn't even notice it. Mm hmm. Which is nice, yeah. Like they're like when we did the when we did the Steadicam walkthrough and everything. You and I and Kruta sort of walked through the shot, and I went, "I think there's a guy here, and I think this is here, and I think I, the camera would go good here, and I think this would be great." And you guys are like, "Yep, yep, okay, great." And then I walk away, and then I get to look at the monitor. It's it's cool. It's fuck. Yeah. I get to sit at the monitor and look at it and go, "Oh yeah," and be a viewer. Yeah, you know, because that's part of what directing is. You want to be. You're the person. You're the person in place of the audience until the movie gets released. Exactly. 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 And I find myself doing this really stupid thing now because it's so hard to get. I don't know if you have the same thing as a director, but it's so hard to get the set out of your vision. Mm -hmm. I understand why Martin Scorsese, even though he's crazy, he does the whole <laughs> lock himself in a fucking van shit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I end up doing, I, I make like fake goggles around my eyes now when I'm looking at a monitor. It's mm -hmm. the dumbest thing. There's no fucking reason for it. <laughs> but it's just, it's further just killing my peripheral. Yeah, so that you can just focus on the thing. You know, as as working with as many directors as I, I have over the years, it's funny to see everybody's process and different people have different <laughs> things. And, you know, you've got the... You've got the binocular thing with the hands going on. Other people will have like um, uh, a flag over their heads. You know, some directors have like a piece of duvetine, and you know they're, 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 they look like they're in a dark room or like a, a parrot with a blanket over their head. You know, but and other directors will just be sitting there and they'll just be in the zone and like saying the words as the actor is saying them and like trying to trying to, to do the intonations and the inflections and all that stuff. And they, that's how they get into it. So everybody's got a different thing. And it's funny to see what those different things are when you go from person to person. Because all they're trying to do is the exact just same connect. thing. It's just connect. Yeah. And just sit there and go, okay. That's why on Who's There, I had that whole second video village where I had randos in there, like my parents and folks like that. Because I'd literally just walk in there afterwards and just go, what did you think? Mm -hmm. Because you lose perspective yeah. when you have 150 fucking questions coming at you. Right. And you're just... All day long. Yeah. And you're looking around going, there's that fucking PA that knocked that expensive bulb out of the fucking ceiling. <laughs> 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 and that's what's right <laughs> 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 And 
and that's what's running through my head as we run through that whole scene. And yeah. it's an injustice to the poor actress who's like killing her shit. Right. Who's and, like quivering and crying and emoting. And I'm just crossing my arms looking at the kid going, <laughs> you just cost me all this fucking money. <laughs> you know? Um, no, but it's true. You, it's, it's hard to tune the, the craziness, the craziness of the set out. And, the, and that's part of the assistant director's department's job is to make sure that you have a set that is controlled and that is conducive toward the creativity of what you're trying to do and toward the process, you know, whatever the process is of that particular director. So your years of experience, is there, um, I don't know if you can drop names, you know, name dropping is, is encouraged mm-hmm. on the show. Is there anybody that you've worked with that you've really learned a lot from? As an assistant director, as a director, DP, or just all, all around? Because I've just, learned from so many different people in so many different departments and in different ways, you know? What about like a sort of like a career changing sort of thing for you? Is there anybody? Um, you know, I've worked with Errol Morris a lot. And uh, Errol, if people know, he's a, he's a, you know, big time documentary filmmaker. He's pretty much established the way docs are done right now, period. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's at the forefront of it. It's like, it's Errol and Ken Birds, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but, um, so I've worked with Errol a lot, and uh, over the years, um, mostly as, so I came up as a PA working for Errol. And so I got to see him work. And what I found interesting watching him work was how organic he is. He's one of these types of directors that is very organic because he comes from the documentary background. And Errol likes to see a lot of different things play out in front of him and then start to whittle down what it is that speaks to him. So he'll have a lot of ideas. He'll bring a lot of ideas to the table and a lot of those ideas will be presented and you'll start to shoot for those ideas and then he'll start to whittle things down and then start to focus on one particular thing. And that'll be the thing that starts to attract him for that particular shot or moment or, or what have you. And what's interesting about watching him work is seeing how he goes from um, the macro to the micro, so to speak. That's huh. an interesting thing. Um, so that, that's, that was, I always found the way he worked interesting because you have to... Pr- Filmmaking is all about collaboration and you have all these department heads that are bringing all these things to you. And so when you work with Errol, he wants to see lots of different things, lots of different options, and then start to pull from those options and then kind of build and play on set. You know, so all those options will be within certain parameters. You know, you're in a 1950s hotel room that you're dressing or whatever, and it's the specific subject or whatever. But within that, so many things are brought more so than what you would see in a normal set. And you just have all this stuff standing by. And then it's just, he goes into this room where there's all this stuff and he starts to um, whittle what he thinks is going to work for the scene. Hmm. And so that's very interesting. Fascinating. So, very organic way of working. So you started with him as a PA. And are you now in the AD world with him? Uh, no, I'm not in the AD world with him. I, I kind of PA'd for him. And um, uh, I'm, I'm a storyboard artist. So I storyboarded for him for a while. And uh, that's pretty much how we worked. He's 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 interesting. He is. He's a weird character, and he does a lot of fucking ads. That's that's where he makes most of his loot, right? Or used to, right? He used to do commercials. He's a big time. commercial director, so he works a lot. Yeah, we're doing a lot, lots of commercials. Yeah, and he's got his own little tight because he's, he's a Boston guy. Yeah, and I've never crossed paths with him. He's got his own very tight knit 
community of people that he works with. He does. He's got people who he's worked with for, for years. Once you work with him, you work with him for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But he's one that, that because I worked with him for so long, for so many years, you know, influenced how I kind of approach certain things. So before, before working with him, you know, I would come, I kind of came at filmmaking from the, you know, uh, Hitchcock way where 90% of everything that you want to do is executed prior to stepping on set. So it was all about preparation, which is still the case. But, um, after having worked with Errol and seeing how organic he is and, you know, other directors this way as well. Um, I kind of get myself to the 90% mm-hmm. and then I purposely throw everything away. Hmm. And then not that, not that the scene isn't working, not that we haven't built a good scene and, and designed good shots and have good intentions with, with motivations with actors and all that stuff. But what I like is setting something up and then having it all work and then start throwing curveballs and then start finding things within it and just start playing with it and playing with that 90% that I have there and then seeing where it takes you. So that's fascinating. That's, t- that's like time though. That you it earn, can be. It you can earn be. that time. Yeah. Like he's earned that fucking time yeah. to be able to do that stuff. Yeah. I'd love to be in that fucking position. Most people would. Yeah. I've worked with directors where, you know, you here's the shots, here's the budget, here's the time. You've got nine hours. Go and don't get a second over it. And yeah. then you have other directors where they're given more time because of the process and because, because of their stature. And then you get to see how flexible they are and what they're able to play with. It's pretty cool. That's envious yeah. right there. That's really cool to be yeah. able to have But, that. you know, again, there, there are other, you know, I know Spielberg is is like that too from what I hear from people um, who have worked with him where he'll set certain things up, you know, set up a huge scene where you, you know, you've spent the whole day prior pre-lighting a whole scene and you're supposed to be looking toward the windows for this massive shot and then he'll come in and he'll just look at everything and start to think and then come up with an idea and realize, nope, he's got to... He's got to look back in the other direction, you know. <laughs> and the crew's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just, you know, that's what it is. You, yeah, yeah. you've got to, you've got to set everything up, but then still be open. Yeah, it's cool shit. Mm-hmm. Errol's really cool. I may or may not have snuck in on some of his sets that he had built recently for his recent production that he did. Oh, the uh, okay, cool. I may or may not have been in there. Yeah, some pretty cool. And stuff. And I may or may not have seen some amazing production design. <laughs> yes, you know his stuff is. And and you're like, what are you doing? Like flashbacks? Like what is this? Mm-hmm. And this is like a movie. This is like you know. Yeah, he does a lot of cool reenactment. Kind oh of stuff. my god, his stuff is huge. And yeah. like, he, I, I, his show Wormwood was great on mm-hmm. Netflix. He's got a new one that he's working on supposedly that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. So he really is an influencer as far as like filmmakers are concerned, especially modern day filmmakers. Yeah. Huge, like every like Vice, you know, Vice sucks his dick all the time. Like everybody does. <laughs> everybody loves his shit. Yeah, it's because you know, like, what was it, the uh, Thin Blue Line, and mm-hmm. his stuff really is amazing. Good. It's it's cool that you had that experience. Yeah, really cool. It's really cool, and this is one of the great things about you know coming up as an AD and being able to look at other filmmakers' work is. It, it's informed me in terms of what my process is, you know, mm-hmm. but I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen Errol work. I've seen lots of different directors work and we won't get into name, name games here, but worked on lots of different sets and you'll see, 
you know, you'll see people come at things from completely off, opposite directions. And then you'll have your own preconceptions. Oh, I would never do it that way. I would do it this way. But then you see this other person come at it from that perspective and from that way. And then it starts, it starts tweaking your, your understanding and starts opening you up and thinking, okay, well, he's getting some really cool stuff here. He's looking at it a completely different way and he's executing it and pulling it off and getting really good stuff. And it starts to kind of seep into how you start to do things. Yeah. Cause you start to see it beyond when you go to film school, it's all textbook. It's exactly. you, you're usually being taught by someone that isn't working in the industry. Right. You're, and, you're, you're being told what the rules are, but really great artists know how to break the rules. And so you go to school, you learn the rules, and then it becomes about you getting beyond that and how how you can navigate all that stuff and learn when to hold on to the rules and when to break them so that you can express yourself in the best way. That's actually really, really cool. It's really cool. So moving on a bit here. So I think that we've discussed, I mean, I don't think I've left anything out. I mean, the AD department is pretty fucking massive, but yeah. I, I hope that... Uh, folks have a better understanding of yeah the ad department we are in charge of running managing all the logistics on set making sure that we maintain the schedule we're the voice of the director we're in charge of communications we're in charge of safety and we're the ones who make sure that we get what we need to to make the commercial or the movie everybody leans on you guys yeah i lean on you like there hits a point where I go, what are we doing, Vlad? <laughs> you know, like it's true. It's where like, are we? What are we doing? What's next? And that's the beauty of it. You know, it's again when I when I direct my own stuff, I take myself completely out of the, out of the AD role. Every now and again, I'll you know I'll start calling and doing all kinds of stuff, and I'm like, oh yeah, I, you know, I gotta let yeah, you let it go. I gotta let my AD do that. But um, it's it's great to be able to just let go. And not have to worry about, oh, what time is it? When do I have to do this? When do I have to do that? Blah, 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 blah. You can just know generally where you're going, be in the scene, stay in the scene, keep your head in the game, and then you can turn to your AD and say, so, oh, yeah, what's next? Yeah, what are we doing? All right, here's what we're doing. I love that. That's that's my favorite. Yeah. Like I said, you you will always be my first call. Because you and I, Thank and you. I know you're gonna, I know you're not gonna answer me. <laughs> At a certain point, you're gonna be like, "Look, I'm directing now. Dude. I'm, director, I'm directing my stuff." Like, yeah, so what? I'm still calling you. You know, it's, yeah, it's still calling. gonna be keep calling. It's still gonna be the thing. Um. So yeah, besides that, uh, I, we could talk a bit about uh, storyboarding and stuff too, because all these things are fat. Like, you come from such a great angle uh, because of how you set up your career and because of how you set up the learning for your career. So like you said, you learned stuff from Errol Morris, but then uh, you also get to spend time uh, storyboarding, which gets into cinematography. Mm -hmm. And then your time that you spent uh, learning how to light and being with a lighting crew, which is really interesting. So these are all these really custom flavors for the, for the Vlad directing thing, which is cool. Right. Um, let's talk about storyboarding a bit. So storyboarding, that's got to be the comic book influence, right? So, yeah. So I was, uh, you know, very much into art growing up. I loved comic books. And as, you know, I started reading more and more and started drawing more and more, you know, the two came together and wanted to become an, a comic book illustrator. And so when I was in high school, a bunch of other artists and myself formed this little studio and we tried to start drawing for um, independent comics around here. And so that kind of started, but this was like close to you know, the end of high school, you know, senior year. 
And, um, you know, some of us decided to continue with college, which is what I did. And others decided to just jump right into the business. So a couple of friends of mine went in and started doing comics. I went to college and, uh, when I was in college, that's how I got into filmmaking. But, yeah. um, I still continue to draw and do my, my illustration on the side while I was focusing on film. And so when I was in college, one of my professors, professors, a, a conceptual drawing professor had seen my work and came up to me and was like, Hey, you've got pretty decent work. Um, my son is a storyboard artist. You do stuff that's pretty cool. And that, you know, uh, kind of fits in that style and I could see you doing that kind of stuff you should think about that and I was like oh wow you know didn't what even is cross this career yeah. exactly didn't yeah. even cross my mind so that was kind of like the first seed that was planted in me at that point and so um, as I started doing my own, my own movies I just boarded everything out practiced boarding from there got some storyboarding books learned all about it and then when I started working in production um, you know, working as a PA and uh, working with different companies and commercials and whatnot, I would tell people that I was an artist and I would eventually start passing my stuff around. And it was then that I started kind of getting little trickles of work here and there. You know, people tried me out here and there. Um, the truth be told, though, it wasn't until I was working with Errol. Errol was the one who gave me, really gave me my shot. Wow. I started working with him, his storyboard artist who he was working with, whatever was booked wasn't available. And they were looking for a storyboard artist quickly. And then uh, the producer who, you know, Errol's producer was like, hey, somebody said to her, I don't, I can't remember how it happened, but hey, Vlad draws, Vlad draws, Vlad draws. Well, what are we looking for somebody for? Let's get Vlad over here. <laughs> so I get a call. Hey, Vlad, what, you can draw? Oh, yeah, I can draw. I can draw, blah, blah, blah. Come on in. We want to do some boards. Okay, cool. So I came in. I did some boards. And then that led to another one and to Toyota commercials and all this other stuff. And it was through him that it really started snowball. And I started working for other directors. And then it kind of took off. Like when I was here, it was kind of difficult. Boston's a little... Boston's a little different than LA because it's a small market. And a lot of times you get smaller um, jobs and smaller budgets. You don't always get, a, you know... A yeah. budgeted storyboard artist. Right. That's one of those like caveats that most producers are like, give me a break. Exactly. So you don't yeah. always get that. And so a lot of uh, directors will either, you know, do their own boards um, or they'll do photo boards. And so I didn't get a lot of opportunity here, even though I would show people stuff. But even still, because, because uh, the jobs were few and far between and because I didn't have a lot of experience when I was first starting off here in Boston... Uh, you know, people were like, oh yeah, he can draw, but you know, we'll, we'll give it to the other guy mm -hmm. because I started getting stuff from Errol when I was in LA. Um, that's what really kind of broke it out for me because I'm now doing storyboards for Errol Morris. <laughs> right. Right. So that led, led to other work. And then when we ended up coming back uh, and working in Boston, people were like, oh, you're doing boards for Errol and all these other directors and blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> and then I started getting more. Isn't it so funny how that works in our business where it's just like, it you're very talented. You've been doing this for a long fucking time, but then you have to go work for somebody. And then, then all of a sudden that same asshole that doesn't look at you twice goes over and goes, Ooh, you're doing this for Errol, huh? <laughs> and you're like, asshole, I've been doing it for a long time. That's, that's the way the business works. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Yeah. Should I put it on a fucking t-shirt? Should I wear that as a t-shirt when I come in now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
there's something interesting in the fact that uh, being a storyboard artist, very similar to being an AD, is that you're decoding a director's intent. Exactly. So in when you start to storyboard, you're given text and you have to take text. And, and when you direct, this is also what you do. When you DP, when you do what you do as well, you have to take text and turn those into visuals and break those into shots. You know, and you know the sentence can be, and he walked to the door and tripped. Okay, that could be one shot. It could be three. Yeah. You know, it could be four. If it's part of an action sequence, it could be 10. It depends on what's going on and what the context is. And so you have to be able to visualize that and then express it and make sure that it's conveying a, a story, a narrative. And um, so I was very much interested in doing storyboards, not only because I like to draw, but to start looking at scripts from that perspective and working with directors to see how they approached it and try to get insight that way. Um, and one of, one of the things that's interesting is, again, everybody's got a different way of working. Some directors, um, again, they're not sure what they want until they kind of see things, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're working with a director that's like that as a storyboard artist, um, they can start to kind of throw out shot ideas, um, but then you'll have to kind of take that and then run with it. Some directors will have no idea. They'll just be like, well, I think something over here and something over there and maybe a close-up here. And, you know, come up with something and, and fill it out and see, see, we'll see how it works. And so that you just start to look at the scene, you read the action paragraph or whatever, and you start to visualize it and how the flow of the narrative would work based off of whatever input you get from the director. And then you, you draw a sequence out and then you go back to them and you present and then they look at it and they're like, crap, we don't like it. <laughs> yeah. you know? Or they look at it and they're like, oh, yeah, I think that works. I think that works. And then there are other directors who know exactly what they want. And they see yeah. everything in their frame, in their head. And uh, they'll just come at you and just say, okay, here's the first thing. Here's my first shot. And it'll be very, you know, you look at the shot list and it's like five pages long <laughs> with multiple paragraphs. And everything's very de detailed down to the frame. And all right, we start with, you know. Okay, imagine the rule of thirds, okay? We're going to start here on the eye, and then blah, 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 blah. And we're going to pull out, and then the steady cam turns, and blah, blah, blah. And then this is when the music crescendo, so I got to get the tilt at this angle, and blah, blah, blah. And so you got to draw all those stages. You know, you may have 10, you know, 10 frames for one shot as you're going across um, the action. Yeah. So it's interesting. What I found interesting was to to see what the range was between how different directors work. You know, there's yeah. some people on either end of that spectrum and then there's some people in the middle. So you kind of, it's interesting because you kind of have to gauge, you don't want, you, you don't want to go in and start, you don't want to make the wrong assumption. You have to kind of walk a fine line. <laughs> you don't want to go in and be like, all right, I see this, 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 and that happening for this scene. And then they go, who's the fucking director? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of have to gauge and you have to wait and see where, where they're at and what they're thinking and what their comfort level is or, you know, what their plan is. And then when you see where they're at, then you just kind of adjust to what they're looking for. I see it a lot now in um, the, big, the big budget shit. So yeah. like the Marvel stuff. Mm -hmm. You watch these movies and you look at who's directing these movies and where they come from visually and you're like, weird choice. You know, I get it. Maybe they're good with actors and that's kind of what it is. And then you start to watch uh, the the movie and then there's that 
beautiful action sequence or the, there's that beautiful painted wide shot and you're like that's a fucking storyboard and concept artist that mm-hmm. just designed that entire fucking sequence mm-hmm. that is right out of whoever that designer is, their head <laughs> yep and you watch that movie and you go why does this feel like it sticks out like a sore thumb amongst everything else because it was the fucking concept artist that designed that entire fucking sequence right yeah and so it's that's very interesting it becomes incumbent on the on the creative crew, on the director to try to meld all those things together seamlessly. Yeah. And to try know? to iron it. Cause I, I take ideas from everybody, but at that point you're, you're trying to, we, Gene and I talk about this all the time. It's like, basically you're hiring me or you because of this filter. Right. And this filter has been created by you. Every step that you've discussed on this show has put you into this position that if I feed you a line, that gets put through all that. Right. And then out of that comes something special. And that's the idea. That's As a director, that's what you're hoping for. That's the voice of the director. Right. But even down to the crew that I cast and the people that I have around me, it's the same, the voice of Vlad, the right. voice of Kruda. It's all these folks. And then I'm supposed to take all those voices and then put them back in through that process again and go, okay, here's how they iron out and here's how they... Right, how it all unifies. Exactly. That's the... I mean, in the best case scenario, that's the world that you're... Like, you know, when we do our own little movies, we have control of that shit. Exactly. And and to that point, like, when you get into these big budget Marvel type movies, you're in such a machine. There's so many different layers. And I don't know if you've worked for... um, You you work for any corporation, any different any corporation where you've got to go through legal, you got to go through this department and that and blah, 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 blah. And by the time you get to the answer or you get to the result of whatever question was asked, it ends up being something completely different. It's being put through all these other filters that you didn't ask to be there. Exactly. And so it takes, it takes a lot to be able to steer all of that and manage all of that so that you can still maintain that voice, you know, a lot of confidence and a lot of mm-hmm. it's it isn't it's like healthy ego. It's like you need to be able to just go like yeah, just perspective, you know, yeah. versus domination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Very true. Very true. There's a lot of directors that have worked locally that are dominators. That <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The stories that you hear, it's crazy. Um, so that's cool, man. I mean, you know me. I do most of my own boarding because that's part of my. Very similar to you, uh, I wanted to be a comic book artist. Yeah. And how, you start how, old, how old are you? Do I have to answer on camera? <laughs> no, come on. I'm just kidding. I'm 42. Okay, so yeah. if I had got into school, yeah. we'd probably be classmates because I had applied for mass art. Oh, really? And I didn't get in because I was a fucking moron kid. So I didn't get into that. For but illustration? I, for illustration. Ah, nice. I had applied because I wanted to do the comic book stuff. Yeah, man. And that was the thing. I was all pumped. And you got in. You were one of those pricks. <laughs> I almost went to the art institute because I had gotten like mass art, at least back then, was very, um, I don't know, disorganized. That's the best word I can put it. <laughs> it's a state school. There's a lot of bureaucracy and, you know, a lot of mail gets lost, I guess. I don't know. But uh, I got my reply from the art institute first. And then I just never heard back from Mass Art. So I was all, I was like, okay, I, I guess I'm going to the Art Institute, you know. And then very late in the game, you know, it's, it was like, I don't know. It was just very late. It was weird. I got a response from 
mass art. Oh, you've been accepted. I'm like, oh, oh. oh so I got to scramble and, and figure all that out and, and go there, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, yeah. It, and that's the one right down the street from uh, the Museum of Fine Arts and all that stuff here yep. in Boston. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's like a total like art community. You're lost in that world. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I wanted to go when I was a kid. I didn't get in. So it changed, changed my world forever. I ended up going back and working full time in the music store, giving the middle finger to schools in general. <laughs> it's formed, it's shaped my whole career path. <laughs> no, I mean, it's good, especially for this business, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, school has its place. School is definitely good. You get a lot of good theory there. And, and, and you know, especially if you go to a liberal arts college, you'll get a good round, round education, which is great. But, you know... For this business, especially if you're coming up to be crew, there's no, you know, nothing's going to be getting on a set and exactly. working for whoever, working and, and for not having ILM that, or, not having that fucking uh, student loan breathing down exactly. your fucking neck. Yeah, which is it seems to be the death of everybody right now. Yeah, is that uh, comic book nerd stuff? What were you reading back then? I started with Spider Man. Me too. Yeah. Me too. I loved Spider-Man. I got in with, with Spider-Man and he hooked me. And then after that, I branched out into, I got into some Batman. I, you know, dipped my, t- my toe in DC, but, you know, mm. didn't love DC. You know, I, you know, I love Batman, but. Yeah, but who doesn't love Batman? Batman's the coolest character. He's Batman's a rich awesome. fucking rich badass asshole. Batman is dope. Yeah, He's yeah. dope. Yeah. But. Uh, so I tried DC out a lot, but I kept getting pulled back to Marvel because Marvel's characters, there's so much pathos, there's so much going on there. Mm-hmm. Lots, lots of different in- interesting characters and allegories and all this stuff. So I got sucked into X-Men yeah. I loved, during the Chris Claremont era. I was reading a lot of that stuff back then. And then um, I got into, uh, you know, I started getting into like things like Watchmen and all these things, you know, just branching out and stuff like that. That was later in my career for yeah. me. I was a, I was an artist nerd. Yeah. So for me, I was like Jim Lee. Yeah. I love Jim Lee. I like that him. whole era. Yeah. He it was, was like great. Punisher Jim Lee, like when he's doing the war journal or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was like, why does the Punisher look so cool all of a sudden? And then when he transitioned into like the uncanny X-Men and yep. that, the introduction of Gambit and all that stuff. All that. That's such a great run. Him oh my Chris, god! Chris Claremont together. That story run is so good. I was. I've been waiting for that to come on to the screen. Like the, oh. the discovery of uh, the Reavers coming after. I mean, they they hinted on that with uh, with Logan, which was one of the better X Men movies to come out recently. But sure, sure, <laughs> sure. You know. But that whole storyline was fantastic. Oh my god, dude! It's a, a phenomenal. And I was just so into like. Wolverine, and then when he was when he was Patch for a while, mm-hmm. and then Psylocke, and the Return of Psylocke, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Genosha, that whole that oh, all that that it whole was run. Mean, it, it was, was great. mean and dark and nasty. Yeah, and then um, uh, then they did the whole Jim Lee doing the blue team, mm-hmm. the fucking, and then the gold team, mm-hmm. which was uh, I can never pronounce his name. We'll see Porta- Portasio. Portasio. Yeah, his stuff was fucking rad. Mm-hmm. I loved I loved that whole era, man. Oh. It was a real big influence. Oh, it's a huge influence on how I frame. It's mm-hmm. a huge influence on my photography. Like Jim Lee's style is, I I rip on his shit yeah. constantly, constantly. I loved him, and then um, Spider Man. I loved obviously McFarlane mm-hmm. was great, but I also really liked Eric Larson. Yeah, and Eric Larson, his loosely drawn like. <laughs> 
big titted women shit that he did all the time. As a kid, I was like, what is this? You know, <laughs> and it ridiculously, I learned how I thought I should have a relationship with Peter Parker and Mary mm-hmm. Jane. I loved Peter Parker because of how real he was, you know, and how down to earth and how just approachable, you know, with there are elements of the X-Men characters that are relatable and approachable, but as a kid, you know, growing up and as it a teenager, yeah. it's, it's Peter Parker all the way. All the way. All the, and honestly, dude, on occasion I would read the, I didn't really get into the Punisher until much later. Yeah. Occasion I would read the grim. Punisher. Yeah. 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 And it was like, okay, so he's got guns and then there's a the whole gun issue. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, X-Men loved, loved mm-hmm. fucking uh, Gambit, loved Rogue, loved Wolverine, yeah. loved Wolverine. Um, and then Spider-Man, that's it. I didn't give a fuck about the Avengers. I didn't give a fuck about I Iron didn't Man. E- I didn't either at that time. It was all about the X-Men. Like the X-Men had the characters, they had the story, they had, it, it was just so much cooler for me back then. Yeah. And I just, I kind of dipped my toe into the Avengers. I, I read some Captain America, read some Iron Man, you know, and they were fine, but I just got sucked back into X-Men because of how cool the stories were dude and they they haven't been done well i i, I haven't read in so long i mean well i mean dude they were doing some we're getting really nerdy i'm not gonna <laughs> let's go, get nerdy man. yeah let's, let's, just, let's, let's, just, let's just do, do it. it this is fine well this will be extra content uh I don't, when was the last stuff that you read from them? i mean it's been years it's been years i mean every now and again i have friends who still read and they'll They'll say, oh, check this out, check that out. And I'll read a one-off here and there, but it's not like I... Because I dropped out. There yeah. was a period of time similar where like, I was reading them and then I was like, I, I got a lot of other things going on. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, you just can't. You just can't do it. And then when I was living in my old house with Seth and a bunch of those dudes that were reading comics, I started to get, I got pulled back in. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading, uh, they did some rad shit with like, I think the coolest stuff they did was the stuff they did with Cyclops. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have been aware of what they did with him which which thing so eventually professor xavier dies right spoilers this happened years ago <laughs> so eventually he dies and comes and, back and, and, then he di- and then he dies <laughs> and then he dies for real um but they do this whole bit where uh, cyclops becomes like this militant leader of mm-hmm. the x-men and Finally, they took this character who I always thought sucked. They took the Boy Scout and turned him into, they gave oh, him an edge. And he was awesome. Yeah. He was fantastic. And then he formed the uh, the X-Force, the new X-Force team, mm-hmm. which essentially was him going to Wolverine. I, used to, I, wa- I read X-Force when it was just starting out. And then eventually, didn't Portacio do some of X-Force at that time as Maybe. well? Maybe. But yeah, I started getting into X-Force at that time. And you know him and the Beast and Jean Grey and all those guys were, were in it. It's pretty much the the dude the original X Men splintering off, which yep. is pretty cool. Yep, yeah. And then they got mean with it. And when he turned to Wolverine and was like, "Just go murder <laughs> these people," and then that whole run, the art was fucking phenomenal. Yeah, like everything was really fantastic. So it put this was you know I don't know maybe five years eight years ago like it pulled me back in. Yeah, and I was in. Again, and the thing I always oh, love thinking of earlier. I'm, yeah, I'm, you're you're further I'm, back. Yeah, like the newer stuff, newer. Yeah, eight years ago, before uh, the acquisition that yeah. happened with Marvel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was really great, and the thing I always loved about uh, Marvel comics and the characters with them is it was like uh, Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. There was so much material, 
And as a kid, I got into Spider-Man probably issue like 390, whatever the fuck it was. Yeah. And as a kid, I jumped in to a random issue that my mother handed me one day and I was hooked. It was like Venom, right around when Venom was showing up and I was in it and I read it and I couldn't wait for the next issue because I would go week to week because yeah. trades really weren't a thing then. I'd go week to week, but I had all this back catalog. So I could still go to the comic book store and go to those boxes that the fucking nerds would be on playing like Dungeons and Dragons half the week. You clear them off and then go <laughs> through old issues. Yeah. And buy like bagged issues of stuff and just start to go back and learn about who this character was and what was happening with them. Then fucking they got to this point where they're like, well, people don't like to do research, so we're just going to reboot everything. Yeah. And they just cut off. 500 issues 400 issues 600 issues for some books is that around the time of the ultimates and all that yeah the ultimates started to kick in and then they started to do multiple universe shit yeah and then then you start to get like all this it's like it's like the spider-verse thing it's just like you just see them going look we need to sell more books we need to reach more demographics what if spider-man was a woman right let's get a whole woman demographic and how do we not piss off all the kids that we already have? Right. Oh, we'll make it an alternate universe. You know what I mean? Right. And then most recently their new gimmick was, uh, all the universes are colliding and now they're, the universes are going to collide and the best characters are going to exist in the actual universe. It's like, fuck you. You know you're selling good books in this universe and you know you're selling good books in this universe. So now you just need to put them all together yeah. and just say that. Don't make it into some fucking, just come out and go, we got to sell books, kids. <laughs> at that point, right, you're being- We see the writings on the wall. Yeah, you're being completely off. When they were having trouble with their movie licensing, there was a whole bit in one of their big events where the Fantastic Four were in the spaceship and they're trying to survive because multiple universe planets are colliding and characters are all dying. So they're killing off characters that have been around for years. Right. Characters are all dying. And the Fantastic Four just breaks away from the spaceship and they blow up. And it was because they didn't have the rights to the movies. It was essentially because they didn't have the rights to their movies. And yeah. they're like, we're no longer going to promote and make books for these characters that we don't have the rights for. That's what they were trying to do with the X-Men. When, yeah. they, when they were trying to make, um, what was the name of the other group? Black Bolt leads them. The Inhumans. The Inhumans. They're yeah. trying to make the Inhumans the new X-Men. Yeah. Because they didn't have the X-Men rights. And now that which, they have, which they do now. Now that they have the X Men rights, now the X Men books are coming back. Right. So it's just as a kid, none of that existed for me. Right. When I read these comic books, it was something that no one else in my family did. I accidentally stumbled on it. When I would go to comic book stores, no one else wanted to go in with me. Mm -hmm. So it was my own little world, and I got to go in there and speak to some nerd behind the counter that was like, "You should read this issue." You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's all it was. And now, when I'm looking at machine. it, you're just like, fuck off. It's like, you're like, <laughs> God damn it, you're creating this character just so you could sell fucking more movies and shit. Yeah, I mean, it's like Star Wars. <sighs> That's me just ranting. I was just ranting. You didn't even get a word in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I feel your pain. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just, everything just feels so loaded right now, where it's like, the reason why I read, read comics to begin with was escapism. The world's got all sorts of shit in it. The mm -hmm. world's got all sorts of shit that's heavy duty. And granted, I came from a good childhood. It's not as bad as some other fucking people. And I know some people that came from bad childhoods that were like, comic books are where I escape completely. Yeah. 
I do not want to be reminded of everything that's going on in the world. And, and there should be something that I identify with story-wise. Yeah, and that's what, that's what Marvel was really good at. Yeah. Like, you know, just they were able to take a lot of these issues that were happening right now and then just make them into these great stories that you can kind of live through and then like be victorious through, you know. And that's what was cool about them. You know, they, they Stan Lee and all his team, all the writers there, they just had a good pulse on how to turn what was going on into these cool stories and that's how they got people connected you know and it was before time where they would brag about it no so like you read the x-men and you're like oh yeah i feel bad for these people that are constantly being uh fucking hunted down and murdered by humans but you i wasn't reading that book going like it's dr king and malcolm x you know i never just didn't i mean looking at it you know you would i saw it but it wasn't like i saw it but I was so taken by where it was going that it was like, oh, this is cool. What a cool interpretation. Oh, wow, that just blew up or whatever. Yeah. Or this character just got, you know, whatever happened to them, you know, and you just got so wrapped up in it. And they did, a, like I said, they did a really good job of just transforming all of these issues into really cool characters and really cool storylines. But I like the fact that they weren't bragging about it because it yeah. did affect me. It still affected the way I saw people and still affected how I interact with folks. Yeah. But without them patting themselves on the fucking back on it, going right. like, this is what we're doing. And that is very much what current climate is right now, where everybody's like, we're great. Right. And we're doing this because we believe. And you're like, mm, mm. and there's the cynic in me, the, you know, the Generation you're Xer. Not cynical. Come yeah, on. yeah, the Generation Xer. In there. <laughs> going like, mm, is that why you're doing it? Mm, yeah. Does no one else look around and just go, the, the same people are making the money on it? Oh, yeah, yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> no one else wants to, I'm an old man now, I'm a 40 year old fucking good dude that's just bitching about it. Yeah, no one wants to hear this shit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no comics. <laughs> Brings back a lot of memories. I love them, man. I still love going to the comic book store. And as a filmmaker, I think I learned the most uh, from how to take a single image and convey a dynamic action. With a single image, mm-hmm. and with an unmoving single image, right? And then uh, one of my favorite directors is Kurosawa for that. Mm-hmm. And my new nerd out session, and I've been talking about this for the past year, is I love how Kurosawa uses elements. And I know we talked about that on Who's There. That's why the fireplace plays a big part of it. Like yeah. how to use elements, right? And how he played with movement. You know, mm-hmm. winds moving through a scene or. Mm-hmm. capturing trees moving and water and all that kind of stuff. And what it means physically and yep. emotionally, what that means. So then you can actually have a stoic fucking character. I always say this one. There's I, What fucking movie is it? Ran? Mm-hmm. It's one of his movies where there's that samurai fucking dude on a horse and he's pissed and he's just sitting there and he's stoic and he's looking right past the camera and that flag is behind him just whipping. Mm-hmm. And that flag is conveying every bit of emotion and all that actor has to do is just sit on that fucking horse. Yeah. He is a, he was a master with that. Just oh understanding God. if he, if he kept the camera still something in the, in the frame was moving or he would take the camera and then he would move it through a scene in such a way that it conveyed the essence of, of a character or an emotion and always, always ended up having like this, this feeling of, of, of transition within within a shot. It was really, he was really, really masterful. You want to talk about AD shit, man. Mm-hmm. This is like, those shots he did with those fucking armies, and this is pre-walkie-talkie shit. Oh, man. When you go back to all those times and you think about 
how legit they were to to pull off some of these scenes with literally actually 10,000 people running through a scene and not having the walkies like you said or having to use bullhorns and didn't have cell phones whatever didn't have a steady cam you know (laughs) (laughs) i heard they i heard they did shit with flags back then i don't know if you've heard this but i heard that they had like a system yeah like a flag signal system for when to reset people and when to have them go yeah that's insanity yeah i mean i just think about when when i started you know and how you know back then pagers were, were were starting to just go away and so you'd be as a pa you'd be driving around doing a run and and your coordinator would page you and you'd have to pull over and, and find a, <laughs> cell phone, a, a yeah. pay phone pay somewhere phone, yeah. <laughs> and then uh you know that year i ended up get, getting a cell phone and then that was like a huge game you know game changer so you got a cell phone now and now you, now i can drive and talk at the same time <laughs> wow yeah 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 yeah, and, and now I got a smartphone that can blow up the earth pretty much in my pocket. Exactly. It's the reason why my wrists and my hands are sore all the time. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, that shit is so crazy to me. And a lot of folks don't think about that. And I love Kurosawa for the simple fact that he's able to make these epic, epic, epic fucking scenes Yeah. with a camera on, on sticks. Yeah, yeah. Just locked frame and then have all this all that stuff. All stillness happening. Really cool. When you were just saying, you know, talking about how they used to do things, it reminded me. Right, it reminded me of this article, and I can't remember the name of the movie, but I was on one of those uh, movie sites, like Ain't It Cool or something. And yeah, yeah. They used to do this series where they used to post a picture from like an old behind the scenes still from a movie, and it's this black and white movie again. I'm forgetting the name, and it's an actor about to look around the corner of a building and you see a sharpshooter you know there's a sharpshooter in the frame in the frame okay. in the frame and so back then they didn't have squibs and apparently according to the article anyway uh in order for them to get the uh bullet holes to go across the building they had a sharpshooter holy shit <laughs> and so this guy you know this actor is coming across <laughs> Coming around the, the corner, <laughs> about to look, and all of a sudden the building gets lit up with, with bullets. And supposedly, again, according to this article, it was legit. And that's how they did it back then. How are we going to do this? Hmm. Let's get a sharpshooter. Can you, can you imagine being that actor? <laughs> Woo! No. Yeah. I mean, back then, you know, that's, that's how you did things. Whatever. You know, you gave assurances and you, you probably got the best sharpshooter in the world and all this other stuff. Whatever. But man, none of that. I could not be that uh, actor. Could you, you're just like, so for, for what? <laughs> How if, much am I getting like, paid? Right? Like, and for what is the shot? Can't you just do it in two? <laughs> do I need I to be? How about we do it this way? Let's, let's recut this. I'll look, I'll look around the corner, corner. in a close-up. Yeah. And then you cut to the bullet holes <laughs> yeah. in a close-up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what happens if you try to get a director to be your actor. Be like, No. <laughs> You gonna shoot at me with a real gun? Yeah. Go fuck yourself. Can you imagine? I mean, just <laughs> can you imagine trying to do something like that today? Like, I mean, you can't do it. Number one, but no, you can't. Just all the legal craziness, and I mean, it's just it's nuts. I've seen them. They must do shit. I think they do shit with like paintball guns now, though. Well, yeah, they do. So you can get squibs, um, like paint pellet squibs, or exactly. Fire those, right? You can get squibs that you can, um, you know, rig to a surface and then explode. 
But then there are these little squibs that are like um, just actually just like a paintball and you fire them and then they'll just create sparks wherever they hit. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. The gunplay stuff is fascinating. I get it's as soon as you introduce any sort of element of danger to a set. I mean, there's always an element of danger when you have so many fucking people Mm -hmm. and you're doing like those long hours and fucking overnights and all that kind of shit. Yeah. And then you start to introduce like weapons to a set. And it's like, fuck, man. It's like bringing matches to a gasoline fucking, you know, pool party. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're just yeah. like. And that's when you really have to just, you know, that's when all your production meetings and all of your uh, department heads have to really get together and really, really sit down and plan everything out to a T. You know, you have lots of meetings prior and it just becomes about everybody getting their heads around it and going through it over and over again and, and making sure that you're doing everything to the safest possible uh, standard out there. Because you, know? you say you don't normally as a as a creator, it took me years to even think about fucking safety because you don't even think about you don't even you, think you, about the repercussions. That yeah, you you're have. just thinking about your you're just thinking about getting your cool shot, you know, exactly. Exactly. Or if you're, you know, convincing someone to shoot in the house, like I would never let someone shoot in my house <laughs> at this point because <laughs> you never think about it. You're just like, fuck, I, I, when we were doing 12 cam, uh, Fink, who owned the building that we were shooting in, mm-hmm. he passed away, by the way. Really nice guy. Oh, really? Yeah, he ended up passing away. But uh, I remember he, he let me shoot in this warehouse for 12 cam that we converted to look like a Russian drill hole place uh travis and those guys did a good job of that um but we're shooting there and he comes over to me on one of the days and he's like what did he say he goes your film people are like locusts they're in everything he's like they're everywhere <laughs> and you don't think about it but when you're yeah, we're like roaches seriously they go they, the whole place everywhere yeah everywhere and if you give us more space, we'll we'll spread out. <laughs> That's the way it works. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, and managing that and controlling that, I, I, I you know, I we should probably cut it loose here because we're getting good. This is a good long episode, but um, I think ultimately that's why I wanted you to have you on the show. Cool. Ultimately, um, I love your work as a director. I love your work as a storyboard artist, and I love working with you as an AD. And I think that uh, uh, you and I, I I, I may have said this on a prior episode, but I did an episode with uh, Zach Merck, Mm -hmm. who's a director in California. And he let me come on one of his sets. He's doing like those big fucking Chevy ads. Yeah. Let me on one of his sets. And uh, I was hanging out uh, watching him direct and he was directing through a trio of monitors and he's on a headset Mm -hmm. and his DP is next to him on his own headset. And then the AD keeps just sort of running in and out. And these guys had this like really fun banter amongst them because they've been working together for years. Yeah. And I remember sitting back there and I was just like, that's me, Vlad and Kruda. <laughs> like it's, it's exactly yeah. the same thing. And you see it on the sets. Like you, you find your guys that you're really happy uh, going to war with. And that's basically it. Yeah. And then you try to keep that, you, you try to keep that dynamic and that energy going, you know, because when it works, it works. When you go to war, you know, because a lot of times, depending on what you're doing, filmmaking can feel like that. It's not actually like that, but it can definitely feel like that. Um, you're just in the middle of a situation. You're out in the middle of nowhere in, in weather or doing some crazy thing. 
and you don't have enough time and there's not enough resources and all that stuff and everything's hitting the fan, you want people that you can, you can fall back on and, and, and support you, you know, and be there with you. Cause if you're stuck with a, with a crappy crew in the middle, I remember working on as a PA, I was in LA, I worked on, um, commercial for the army <laughs> and I won't name the company, but it was just, it was a bad company and a bad commercial, but we were in the middle of this cow pasture and we had, a, we started the day. We had to get these army helicopters descending into this valley and, uh, you know, uh, troopers are like repelling out of the out of the choppers and into this <laughs> into this lake and all this stuff and easy then, day yeah and then we went over to this other section of the valley and it was this uh cow pasture and we had to, they had to clear the cows out of there and then we had tanks coming through and all that stuff and uh water trucks because they wanted you know as the tanks come through this particular part of of this plane they want them wanted them to hit this bump and then for water to be splashing so we had to fill it up with water and all this crap and it started to rain and because it was a cow pasture there were cow patties everywhere and it stank <laughs> and and it's this wet cow shit yeah you're in wet cow crap and it's raining <laughs> and people are yelling and the crew wasn't getting along and you're dealing with tanks and helicopters and so you know you're trying to coordinate all that stuff so things aren't working out the way you need to and it was just the day was just getting longer and longer and longer and when you're in situations like that um, where things could be dangerous, where you're you're covered in mud, half mud and half cow crap, and people are yelling at you, <laughs> and you're on hour 18 or whatever it is, and you still have like an, an hour drive home or whatever, you just want to be surrounded by good people. That's exactly it. It's <laughs> exactly it. You want to be like hanging out, going like, he's got cow shit all over him. <laughs> 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 that's my favorite and and you know that's why i like our positions because it's usually us because i'm not allowed to do that as a director with a lot of people that are under because you don't want to set that tone no but usually we walk in the other room we're just like asshole's got cow shit in his mouth <laughs> uh, all right so um i think we're at a good point i think this has been a great episode um this is normally where I let the guest give some words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. So is there, um, is there anything that you've learned now recently that you could go back in time and tell uh, the Vlad that just got out of art school? Yeah. I mean, I, so much, so much. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, to push harder, to um uh maintain more connections to continue writing you know you get sucked into the work and uh you know just working for pay and and you get farther and farther from your own personal goals you know just to keep on uh focusing on that, those goals you know allow enough time to be able to do both you know even though you're trying to get that you're trying to make that buck to pay that bill you still need to feed the fire inside. And so sometimes as I was going through my career, I got sucked into that and just got paying, got into the, the rhythm of just paying and, and making that money. Um, I wish I spent more time just kind of focusing on the art, you know, pulling back. A lot of times I couldn't because I had to pay. You got to pay your bills. But 
keep working on the art and keep drilling and, and stacking those ideas. You know, one of the, one of the best things to do as a creator is to is well, <laughs> the obvious is to create. Yeah, and and keep creating and keep mounting those ideas and and having that to to pull from. And I just wish I had more. You know, I'm starting to stack more now. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. But I wish I had more. You know. Well, dude, you've got. I mean, I was talking about. I always refer to the toolbox. Yeah. You've got a fucking killer toolbox, man. I, you know, I, I did okay. You've got years of experience in this fucking toolbox. Yeah. So like you've, you've got the shit. And then the unfortunate part about our business is that you have to prove it all the fucking time. Exactly. You're Every right. fucking second of the day. Only as good as your last job. Exactly. So you're consistently proving it. Um, but it's good advice. I think that you're right. You just have to continue to stack. And we all find ourselves getting into rut because life, unfortunately, no matter how hard, we just want our life to be filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Life seeps its way in. Then there's shit that you got to deal with in the real world. Smacks you in the face. Yeah. And so then you just got to remember, hey, look, I got to tackle this life shit for a little while. Yeah. But I got to go back to work. And back to work means like I got to go back to work creatively. I got to go back and convince myself first that I'm still in this game and this is what I do Yeah, and find your voice again. I think that's the most important thing is, is making sure that you are aware of where your voice is. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it's tough, you know, life can like, it can pull the veil over your eyes and you can be in it for a while and just all, all kinds of times, all kinds of time goes by and then you realize, Oh wait, crap. I got to go back and do what I really want to do. But you're in a good position. You're like me, man. Your 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 wife works in this business. Andrew yeah, we both we both work in it. And you know, like I said, I'm directing, which is great. You know, I'm do, doing mostly commercials now, but I want to really focus on getting back into features, and that's what I'm putting a lot of my time into right now. Features and TV, features and TV. Mm-hmm. So we'll do it, dude. Let's do it. There's the fire. We'll do it. We'll be in there. It'll happen. I'm telling you, it's a slow. Watching those dominoes, they're slowly falling. It'll happen, dude. We'll get in. Yeah. But yeah, that's it, man. That's it. Otherwise, I'm pretty, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad I did all the things that I did. You know, learning from all the directors that I did as an AD, as a storyboard artist. Coming up as a PA was great because I got to be in different departments, in the art department, in locations. I got to see a really broad uh, spectrum of the business and get a good understanding of it. And all of that helps, um, it all helps you as a director, you know. I don't know, you've probably run into uh, folks who've come into directing and have just come in straight from something else, whether they were able to make their own short and just start, or they started as an exec somewhere and decided they wanted to direct, or if you're in commercials, they were an agency person and, right. you know, a creative director and all of a sudden started directing. And so they come at it from the creative perspective, which obviously you need. But um, they don't always have the, the understanding of what it takes um, from a crew perspective and all the things that you need to get, to get what you need done, done. And so that experience helps considerably.
Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, I hope you've learned uh, what it takes to be an assistant director. I hope you've learned uh, how important of a role it is on the set. That is for all of you young producers out there that uh, claim that you can do both producing and assistant directing. Why the hell do that to yourself? Uh, It's just a day rate, guys. Hire someone that knows what they're doing. It's going to make your shoot go so much more smoothly. Uh, You're going to actually have fun doing it. Um, And uh, I hope uh, Vlad was able to give you guys some insight. And uh, like I said, I I recorded this episode a few weeks ago. Uh, I'll give you guys an update on what Vlad's up to now. He just finished shooting and directing uh, a brand new short film, which I'm not going to give out the details for. I'm just going to say that I've seen an early cut of it. I've seen an early version of it. And it's really fucking cool. I'm very proud of the guy. He's like pushing hard, hard, hard to uh, to, to direct. Uh, it's going to suck if he becomes a uh, really great director because then I won't be able to hire him as an assistant director, but I'm very proud of him. Uh, and I'm very excited. And when he finally releases that movie, I will be sure to let all you guys know about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so thanks for listening to the show. I got a bunch of really cool fucking episodes coming up. I got to get some high-profile people on. I've got, uh, give you guys a little, little, little taste, a little tease. Uh, I've got, like, an amazing, uh, creature designer, an effects guy who's been in the business since the 80s, and he's worked with everybody from Stan Winston, uh, all the way through. Like, uh, I don't want to give away his name yet, but it was a really fucking great interview. Um, and uh, we'll get really nerdy with some creature effects in an upcoming episode. Uh, and that being said, if you enjoyed the show, please, please, please share it to all your friends. Tell uh, people that are looking for podcasts, why the fuck are you not listening to In Love With The Process? Uh, because uh, I try to be informative, we try to be a little bit funny, and, uh, you know, it helps me out. The more people that listen to the show, uh, the better I'm going to be doing with the sponsors. And I still deal with sponsors. I'm just going to come right out and say it. I still deal with sponsors looking at numbers, and it's the most ridiculous thing. If you're a sponsor, it isn't just about numbers for traffic. It's about genuine listeners. It's about people that care. And I know you guys care because I have a lot of you writing to me constantly and asking about how to build a PC. I direct you over to Puget. Like, you guys like the stuff that we put on the show for sponsors. So I try to pick them wisely. I don't just take money from anybody. Uh, um, We try to promote and push uh, stuff that we use and stuff that we like. Um, And... The only way for some of these places to really be convinced of that is if you guys show how much you like the show. So please, post about it. Talk about it. If you liked an episode, tell people about it. Please interact. Get in touch with me. Send me some questions. If you got an issue, if you think I'm full of shit, send me an email. Tell me I'm full of shit. It's just really nice to hear from you guys. And um, when you do respond, it, it helps take away from... You know, the idea that this voice goes out into the void. <laughs> um, but yeah, also, if you want to help this show, go to inloveoftheprocess.com. Uh, you can donate to the show. There's a $5 donation button. Um, but if you don't want to reach into your wallet, and I get it, 
I work in this business too, and sometimes there isn't disposable cash. Uh, if you haven't already signed up for a free trial at audible.com, do it with our name. If you, uh, I'll put the link below, but I think it's audible.com trial. I always fuck up the link. Audibletrial.com backslash in love of the process. The link will be below the episode. It's not like you're going to write it down while you're listening to this. Aye, aye, aye. But uh, if you sign up, use our name, um, uh, you'll get a 30-day 30 30 free trial. Uh, you'll also get a free book. Um, and uh, it's really great. I don't know if you guys have ever done it before, but um, I love listening to books uh, because I often can't find the time to sit down and actually read a book. And most of the time when I open up a book and I start reading it about 10 pages in, I take a nap because somehow I've relaxed my body to the point where I can go to sleep. So I think it's better to listen to books these days. Um, and uh, Audible has everything that's published and the production on these things are fantastic. Uh, they're really great listens. And if you're already listening to podcasts, it's a simple transition. So if you want to support the show, go check it out. Click the link below, sign up uh, using In Love With The Process, and uh, we'll get paid. And if you find that uh, you don't really dig it 30 days later, cancel it. Doesn't matter to us. We still get paid. But I know you'll like it. Okay? Okay, Audible? I'm not telling people to cancel it. I know they're going to like it. But I'm just saying, don't feel pressure. Uh, so yeah, and then other than that, um, I, I don't know if you guys saw it, but I released uh, a new piece. I released uh, a commercial piece that I did for uh, Dale Strong, a very loyal client of mine that allows me to uh, go off the deep end and uh, film some really crazy stuff. And uh, we did this really cool uh, knife piece on uh, Philip Cruda, who is a master chef. Owns a restaurant, a very talented guy. He's also a woodworker. Uh, and I was obsessed with how uh, to show the parallel between how the same set of hands could be working with planers and uh, saws and uh, wood and also uh, be delicately building these beautiful, tasty dishes. Um, and it just so happens that he's also uh, David Crude's brother, which was very convenient. Um, we did an amazing piece. Um, so definitely check it out. You can find that at mikepetchy.com. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the shit that I've been posting on it on my Instagram. So that's at mikepetchy. And if you don't follow it already, go to the In Love With The Process POD. That's In Love With The Process POD on Instagram. That's our official podcast Instagram. Uh, there I'm doing posts of behind the scenes stuff, stuff that really inspires me. Artists. Uh, I also uh, have been giving away a lot of inspiration kits. Uh, which are usually stacks of comic books that I love, and I'll just uh, make some notes in it. Uh, I, I just have a, a, a load of shit that I got to get rid of, and I got tons and tons of uh, comic books, tons and tons of books that I got to uh, reduce in size at this point, and I don't want to throw them away. Um, and so I'd like to get them in the hands of folks that will actually use them and be inspired by them. So uh, check in frequently on my Instagram accounts, and that's where I'm doing all that. Wow. There's a lot to promote, a lot of stuff that I'm blabbing on about. Um, eh, fuck it. Let's just end the show right now. So I appreciate you guys listening, and uh, stay tuned for some cool new episodes on the horizon. See you.